So I have the privilege of chairing the meeting today. And Secretary Morowitz, would you call the roll? Yes, of course. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'll start. C Commissioner Christian. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. Commissioner Green. Present. Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Chung. Present. And Commissioner Gerardo. Present. And uh, before we go on to the land acknowledgement, I want to make sure everyone understands that the, um, the number to call for public comment uh, had one digit off on the email I sent out to the community. I've corrected it through that same community group, and it's correct online, but I want to make sure I'm doing my due diligence here. The number to call in is 415-655-0001. The access code was correct on the email and the website. Uh, again, it's 2599-689-0846, pound. Thank you. Commissioner Chow will read the land acknowledgement. Thank you. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Thank you. So the next item on the agenda is minutes approval. And we have two different sets of minutes. The May 11th, 2023 minute that we, um, meeting that was a joint meeting between the Planning Commission and the Health Commission. And then our meeting for May 16, 2023. So Secretary Morowitz, can you walk us through these approvals? Sure. So commissioners, um, you'll have a vote for each item. And the public, if they wish to, can comment on each set of minutes. So we'll let's take it one at a time. How about if we start with the May 11, 2023 minutes? And even if you were not attending in attendance, commissioners, you can vote on those minutes. Thank you. So is there a motion to approve the May 11, 2023 minutes minus any additions or corrections? I'll move. And a second? Second. Is there any public comment? Folks on the line, if you'd like to comment on the May 11, 2023 minutes, please um, raise your hand. Um, we uh, actually, I need to do a quick speech um, or a script. For each agenda item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or from members of the public to engage in back and forth conversations with the commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals uh, may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the Health Commission at the following email address, health.commission.dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so in your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received accommodation for a disability. I've given each of these individuals a code to speak, and there were two who received accommodation when they began their comments to, begin to prevent others from speaking during this time. 
Finally, we will hear from uh, re remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard from on each uh, on each item from individuals who have not received an accommodation for disability. All right, so um, Jeanette, uh, so if you've received an accommodation, um, please raise your hand if you'd like to make public comment. If you haven't received an accommodation, let's just wait to see who, um, if there's a line first. Jeanette, please um, unmute the caller who's got the hand raised and we'll see if that person has accommodation. Uh, <clears throat> Mark, it's WW or Patrick Minnesota, but I want to speak to the minutes of the May 16th meeting. Sorry. Right, so, so hold your comments then, Mr. Manetschall, because we're, we're doing this and the, and the commissioners will vote on it. So just hold and, and, and we will get back to you. Jeanette, please right. mute. That's okay, no problem. All right, so there's no uh, public comment on these minutes, commissioners. You're welcome to make comment or vote. Any questions or comments on these minutes? All right, can we take a vote? All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed, right. none. All right. The minutes pass. Now right. we'll move to the May 16, 2023 minutes. Were there a few corrections? Or yes, reviews? there were. Thank you mm -hmm. so much for reminding me. Um, and thank you, Commissioner Chow, for pointing them out. If I read another book, then you will certainly be my editor because you are the man. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, on, I believe it's on page. Sorry, I had this marked before. Well, uh, first of all, on the very last um, page, um, that I had forgotten to put in the vote that you all, um, the action taken was that you voted unanimously not to disclose discussions held in closed session. Um, that is on page 10. Um, and then on page eight, there are several uh, minor corrections. Underneath the commissioner comments towards the bottom of the page, um, Commissioner Guillermo um, noting that it seems the DPH behavioral health budget is in a deficit and uh, instead of the word relay, it should say rely on the realignment to balance the budget. And then underneath that, Commissioner Green's comment, I will read the sentence as it should um, be stated. Ms. Louie stated that the state will cease, which is an added word, coverage of those who receive special COVID-related emergency coverage. Those are the corrections. Thank you. Are, are there any other additions or corrections? All right, then, is there a motion to approve the minutes of May 16th? So move. And a second. Second. And we'll go to public comment, public comment. now. So um, Jeanette, please um, unmute Mr. Manetshaw. Thank you, Mr. Morwitz. Um, I enjoyed reading the Ponzi Princess, so you should write another book. Perhaps going into your service uh, on as the health commission secretary for all these years would be really interesting to read it. As for the May 16th meeting minutes, I was glad to see they included my testimony on the director's report, hadn't mentioned the nurse, the Laguna Hunter Nursing Home Administrator and the two Assistant Nursing Home Administrator provisions. I noted an updated organization chart showing the new reporting structure should be published and provided to the Health Commission is a high priority. Laguna Honda's current org chart updated last November showed the nursing home administrator a few layers down from Laguna Honda's CEO. Since then, it's become clear there's been a restructuring change because the nursing home administrator will serve concurrently as Laguna Honda's CEO. And I noted that ideally, 
the nursing home administrator should report directly to the doc director of public health, Dr. Colfax, not report to the CEO of the San Francisco Health Network. SFHN had initially been created to oversee the 13 neighborhood primary health care clinics, not to manage Laguna Honda. That was another of the commission's major mistakes and must be corrected. So, Mark, when are you going to get around to writing another book? And I can volunteer to help be your proofreader since I've caught so many errors uh, that I've tried to kindly point out to you via email. Thank you. All right, please mute him, Jeanette. That's, that's the only public comment. <laughs> Mr. Manetshaw does point out many errors. Thank All right, so um, thank you to him for doing yeah, that. So, commissioners, now you're ready for All the right. vote. Uh, All in favor of the approval of the minutes of May 16th, say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right, hearing none, we will go to the next agenda item, which is general public comment. Okay, so um, I am not going to read the script because it's basically the same information. This um, item is for public comment related to items that are not on the agenda. So if, um, for instance, under the director's report, there's, um, it states Laguna Honda is there, this would not be a place to talk about Laguna Honda's recertification efforts um, or anything else. But um, anyway, uh, please raise your hand if you'd like to make general public comment. All right, I see one hand. Jeanette, please uh, unmute Mr. Manette Shaw. Yeah, so I am not speaking about Laguna Honda's recertification uh, so don't cut me off, please. I do want to say, however, that because the um, agendas are so long and the director's report that is going to mention uh, just a minor Laguna Honda Hospital update, I want to encourage the commission to, over the next couple of months at least, at a minimum, include a agenda item on your agendas that is exclusively an update report from the LHH CEO, particularly since she will be serving in a new capacity. You should hear from her at every full health commission meeting twice a month and not have it buried in Dr. Colfax's report, which uh, is so long reporting on other news about activities within the department that Laguna Honda should definitely be a separate agenda item on every health commission meeting until recertification is accomplished. Thank you. Please mute. No, great. That was the only public comment or the only hand raised for this item. Thank you so much. So we will go to the next agenda item, which is the SFDPH Behavioral Health Services Update. And we welcome Dr. Hilary Kunins, who is the director of the BHS and Mental Health San Francisco. We've really looked forward to hearing your report and your, your uh, slides showed a tremendous amount of progress. So you have the floor. Good afternoon, commissioners. Good to be here. I've been running around. I'm just catching my breath. Apologies. Um, 
Alyssa, please pull up the um, BHS Mental Health SF um, presentation. Sorry, Dr. Conant. That's okay. And I'm realizing, hopefully I'll be able to see the slides. Yes, it, it should pop up. Alyssa, are you there? I've unmuted you. Yes. Um, could you share your screen to bring up the BHS update? Thank you. seeing it yet. Are you doing okay? Is it not sharing? No, it's not showing. There we go. Okay. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, well, I'm very pleased to be back. Nice to see everyone. Thank you, of course, for having me speak about behavioral health services and some of the work that we have been doing recently. Um, thank you also, commissioners, for your questions, and I will uh, try to incorporate them into the presentation. And then if there are ones I don't address, I'll sort of circle back at the end. Next slide. Uh, so just as um, an outline roadmap for this presentation, just sharing with you our ever-evolving vision, vision and mission, I uh, wanted to share with you some updates around our triennial audit of the mental health plan, some budget highlights, uh, including opioid settlement, our work around 5150 training, that is 5150s are involuntary psychiatric holds, our care court update, some of our key equity initiatives, uh, our mental health SF update and treatment on demand. And then finally, Cal AIM and EPIC. We have been busy indeed. Next slide. Um, you can see um, on this slide, and this is a slide that you have seen now pretty much a last couple of pre presentations, so hoping they are familiar, and these are really just to create the orientation and approach for, for our work. Next slide. Um, so I wanted to share with you, um, this is an area of work that doesn't often get highlighted perhaps unless it doesn't go as well as we would like, but um, I want you just to make you all aware of the extent to which we work with our state partners, uh, participate in state audits, and this is one of the very largest ones. In April, we participated in the Department of Healthcare Services, what's called triennial audit for our mental health plan. This is our role in the county to be a payer of mental health services as, as a managed care plan. And we have um, a large number of obligations under, under that um, responsibility. This is conducted every three years. The state monitors our compliance with state and federal law and contractual requirements through an extensive document review and three-day on-site evaluation. 
the state works very closely with all of the mental health plans in all of the counties. We will be expecting um, a findings report soon. Of note, and what takes up a fair amount of all of our time, is we undergo approximately eight audits per year. Most recently, we participated in a program review of our Mental Health Services Act funding, and I know you've heard you hear about the Mental Health Services Act programming annually. In December, we um, had our what's called uh, external quality review organization audit. We have two of those a year, one for substance use and one for mental health. The next ones both will be coming up in September and November of this year. We continue, um, of course, to incorporate findings and feedback from these audits. Um, they have been successfully completed by and large with some specific findings, of course, and areas of improvement but they really are very much part of our bread and butter um, work uh, to do eight audits a year. Next slide. Um, uh, I think that you are all likely to have seen with more details to come an announcement the week before last about some proposed budget investments for both mental health and substance use. The budget makes some investments in some new approaches to some of our pressing behavioral health issues, including care court, wellness hubs, and continues a large number of existing programs, Mental Health SF, which we are continuing to implement, overdose prevention, street outreach, as well as what are called termed abstinence-based treatment programs. The behavioral health proposal, as you know, will be included in the mayor's proposed two-year budget and submitted to the Board of Supervisors for review and, of course, um, after, uh, after you all have uh, already heard about some of these highlights. Next slide. Um, also in the news recently was um, the city's uh, settlement uh, with Walgreens um, following opioid litigation. The, the city attorney reached an approximately $230 million settlement. This is over multiple years, um, uh, which is uh, so spreading out some of the funds coming into the city. Uh, and in the Walgreens case, it's 14 years. The vast majority of the settlement dollars will come in the first years, first eight years of the, uh, of the time period, and that includes 57 million in the first year. The funding is being allocated during the current budget process with priorities being set uh, by, by the city and, and the mayor's office. Next slide. Um, um, another program uh, update that I wanted to share with you is extending the authority to initiate an involuntary psychiatric hold or 5150 to community paramedics in the city. I think as all of you are aware under California law, there are specific people authorized to initiate an involuntary hold. This includes peace officers and then also uh, under the local behavioral health director, myself, extends to other uh, mental health and behavioral health prof professionals. So um, we are pleased to be able to, uh, in coordination with the fire department, train additional paramedics and specifically the community paramedics 
who already have specialized training in behavioral health and behavior de-escalation and caring for people with behavioral health concerns. We will be starting to train these paramedics actually now in this month, and we anticipate they will be able to um, execute right 5150 orders starting in July. Already we have been have trained the captains and acting captains who are part of that division. And so they all um, already have been doing holds and we are participating with them in a quality improvement work similar to all of the holds that, that we give authority to. Um, I think um, one of you asked, I don't have, I don't have who asked, so I will uh, take these all together. Um, I think you asked an important question about what are the ideal outcomes for a 5150 authorization and how does, um, and, ha and, and what is our public health goal there? So our main and central goal is to ensure that a person who is in crisis is able to receive the most appropriate intervention and ideally and always a voluntary intervention in as timely a fashion as possible. So we are continuing to monitor the use of 5150s to see uh, in total, um, to see, first of all, if they are going up, staying the same or going down. And importantly, and I've, as I've presented here before but without data, is what happens to somebody after a 5150 because that is the ultimate outcome. Do they have subsequent crisis? How is their health after receiving a 5150? And are they ultimately connected to ongoing care that will stabilize their medical, uh, medical and behavioral health condition or conditions? And so we are setting up and have started already to set up a connection to care tracker for people after a 5150. We are able to do this or beginning to, we are validating the data and I will be delighted to share it with you once, once we have that validated um, for a, a subset of those and we're aiming to do it citywide, not just for the parts of the health system that DPH is operating. Next slide. Um, also of great interest is um, I know uh, in the in the in the press and amongst our staff is the new the newly established program called Care Court. This this program was created under state legislation. The idea is to allow a broader range of petitioners, or as the legislation names, reference to seek assessment of people who have a very specific set of conditions as it's defined in the legislation. You can see the language there, schizophrenia, spectrum, or other psychotic disorders. So implementation for care court is being done in phases. There are um, early adopters or first cohort of which we are one of seven counties and then a year and change later in December of 2023, the, um, all other counties will implement. So we are in the process of really designing the program um, uh, procedurally. We are collaborating with city partners, including uh, our partners in the judicial system, our partners in the housing system, in order to estimate the number of potential care court uh, participants who would be eligible, 
we've, we have um, a staffing, developed a staffing model. And I think one of the questions here is includes the workflows uh, sort of moving from the court process to our involvement as assessing the eligibility, making uh, rec recommendations and treatment recommendations, and then helping the person get into care. The care would be delivered by our community-based organization partners. And so we would be working closely with those partners in order to facilitate entry and retention in care. Um, the care court statute creates a, a number of reporting deliverables. These include both sort of process measures, person participant demographic characteristics, what services or supports were delivered, housing placements, uh, and so forth. Um, are out the outcome measures that are of interest to the to the program and to ourselves include improvements in obtaining and retaining housing, reduction in uh, non-routine healthcare visits such as emergency department visits, reduction in law enforcement encounters and incarceration, um, reductions in involuntary treatment and conservatorship. Um, and retention in, in ongoing care. Um, we also, um, uh, worth mentioning is um, some of the state money that has been put forward as part of the program. The city did receive some startup money with anticipated some amount of ongoing money. That number will, is not yet known or clear. The state also, and that's the last bullet on your slide, um, put out uh, what is called bridge, a bridge housing grant. This was allocated by county and so in wave one, and we have put in a grant for wave one in order to um, help care court participants and other San Franciscans gain access uh, to, to both shorter and longer term housing supported and otherwise. That money is not ongoing money, unfortunately. It goes for several years and then um, we don't know yet. Um, there will be two more waves of bridge housing funding that will be coming out soon. Um, and we will, and that, that money will be competitive for the county and we will also be applying for those dollars. Don't know how much yet and, and don't know about whether, what the specifics will be there. Next slide. Uh, I think I think I basically said all of this. Okay, we can go to the next slide. Um, next slide. So I, I wanted to share a little bit of an update. And, so, and, and you've seen um, sort of earlier iterations of each of these projects. I'm very excited to sort of share some of the progress that we've made. Um, we are, and including myself, participating in a behavioral health leadership equity fellowship where we are gaining um, skills um, and awareness of anti-racist practices and thinking and strategizing about the ways in which we as leaders can implement and create a more equitable workplace 
and equitably and equity-driven services for the people we serve. Our innovation in, uh, intervention or culturally responsive care for black African-Americans has been, um, uh, I'm very happy to say we are launching it this month. This has been sort of um, long talked about, including with you all, and I'm very happy to say we're, we're really be, uh, beginning to launch it now. We also have um, a maternal health RFP that was just recently awarded and which will begin in the fall. Um, and we are partnering with Human Rights Commission on offering with Mental Health Services Act funding, a, what we're calling a universal talk therapy program available uh, uh, to San Franciscans who identify as black African-American. Next slide. Um, I wanna also just really again highlight that the profound racial disparities in fatal overdoses among black African-Americans in our city. We are aiming to identify both resources and tailored strategies, including some Mental Health Services Act money that will be dedicated to reaching uh, the, uh, folks who are at highest risk, including black African-Americans. We are also expanding our ability to do overdose prevention and trainings, and you can see some of the most recent sites that we have that are new to us as places to train. Um, one of you also asked important questions about how we are um, uh, addressing the need to increase acceptance of behavioral health services among communities that might not historically or currently been able to accept services. One, I think community is the Asian Pacific Islander community, and we have a number of services, as I've described to all of you, um, uh, uh, addressing the needs with more always needed. Some examples are last year, we awarded a grant to Chinatown North Beach Mental Health Clinic and something and the Asian and Pacific Islander Mental Health Collaborative, which is a division of the organization RAMS, Richmond Area Multiservices, to collaborate in a joint social service case manage, management program to link monolingual uh, uh, immigrants who are from Asian countries to community resources. This is really an interesting novel, I think, novel program. So for example, RAMS uh, provides bilingual Asian uh, non-clinical case managers who are Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Lotion, and Thai to Chinatown, North Beach to assist clients in social service needs. So we see this both as a recruitment strategy as well as a connection to care strategy. Um, we also uh, recently launched at Chinatown North Beach an older adult outreach pilot. This is a small team of two or three um, uh, multidisciplinary health workers, including a behavioral health clinician, a nurse practitioner, and a farm and or a, a pharmacist to reach out to older adults with, acute, with um, medical and psychiatric needs who have limited mobility. And we're excited about that program. The team will be able to assess both medical needs and behavioral health needs. We anticipate this kind of holistic approach to care is both appropriate for older folks, but also as a way to pull more people into behavioral health care. 
Finally, we know that hiring and specifically linguistic competency is extremely important as part of our hiring efforts. Um, we have added to the way we hire what's called a notice of inquiry. So somebody applies for a job, the job comes up, we send a notice, are you interested in this particular job? So we've added to our notice of inquiry a sort of survey question about um, people's lived experience and linguistic experience with po specific populations, at allowing us to try to both recruit and hire for, for these specific needs. Okay, next slide. I'm talking really, am I talking really fast? <laughs> okay. Uh, mental health SF. Um, next slide. Um, so I know you also all know about this slide, Mental Health SF, as you know, was established in 2019, funded through Propsy, also known as uh, Our City, Our Home. Um, these are the four key initiatives, and I wanted to just update you on where we are at with, with these. Next slide. Um, so um, this is our... Uh, hopefully now famous to you, BED dashboard. This shows the progress we are making to opening the, our 400 beds that were funded under Mental Health SF. As this slide shows, we have opened 350 of the 400. I should say sort of parenthetically that some of the beds that we opened out of county, our intent is to bring them back in county as we are able to identify some sites where we were able to bring return services uh, as part of the strategy. However, this was a way to get more services opened uh, as quickly as possible. Um, um, one of you asked um, just a question about um, uh, un unused beds and are we using our beds? Um, so I know there's been some media reports about unused beds, uh, perhaps in the supportive housing sector, which is not part of this portfolio. Really all of our beds online are utilized. Um, our aim is to not have them at 100%. We want them to be at about 90, 85 to 90% capacity because that allows for rapid placement when somebody comes up and is appropriate for care. As we've been discussing, as I've discussed publicly, we still have a need and we are on track to do so um, or exploring ways to do so as part of those next 50 is some additional um, uh, beds that treat people with severe both mental health, uh, with severe, severe mental illness and substance use disorder, so-called dual diagnosis beds, we also uh, will be planning to open some dedicated beds for transitional age youth that are residential beds and our crisis stabilization unit, which is in renovation uh, in a new building, will also still need to open. Next slide. Um, most recently, we, we announced that we opened 70 new, what are called residential step-down beds. This is also known as recovery housing or sober housing. This is dedicated to people coming out of residential substance use disorder care who might not have another stable place to go. And so this extends their 
uh, time period of stability with social support um, and in a living environment where people are working on recovery while enrolled in, uh, in outpatient treatment. So um, anyway, this is very exciting and this is really a large number of beds to come online and will help us with flow in and out of residential substance use treatment. Next slide. Another um, uh, both progress and change to mental health San Francisco is that the city undertook a reconfiguration of street response teams in January. That affected the city's street crisis response teams, uh, as you can see on this slide. So our service, behavioral health, transitioned our role to provide a follow-up and proactive response uh, in neighborhoods where there are folks in need of behavioral health interventions. So as of March, just um, a couple of months ago, we initiated yet another acronym, something called BEST Neighborhoods. BEST stands for Bridge and Engagement Service Teams Neighborhoods. And we started serving uh, the following areas of the city, as you can see, seven days a week. We also have a team that is dedicated to serving clients outside of those areas. We have some opportunity to grow the team as they get restaffed um, uh, as we lost some staff in, the, in this transitional period. Our goal is to enhance both uh, near-term, what we call intermediate-term and longer-term follow-up support for people who may have interacted with a street crisis response team and who need ongoing behavioral health care so that we don't lose anyone who may have been seen by a street team may have been referred for something else, ongoing care, and so we are ready to sort of connect with them. That team, is, that Best Neighborhoods team, is now part of our Office of Coordinated Care, so we don't want to be creating sort of a separate thing and want to connect folks back into sort of our structures and ways that we have to make referrals and make sure people are retained in care. Next slide. I think I already talked about this. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go on to the next slide. Okay, treatment on demand, next slide. So um, also, um, since I've last spoken to you, we uh, submitted and then um, uh, testified or was, was a hearing in front of the Board of Supervisors on our treatment on demand, treatment on demand um, as you know, is or called Proposition T, requires San Francisco Department of Public Health to provide adequate substance use disorder treatment capacity to meet community demand for publicly funded treatment. So in uh, last fiscal year, fiscal year 22, we enrolled 40, more than 4,500 people in substance use disorder treatment. Um, and this, I mean very specifically to mean the specialty care system, that is the licensed part of the treatment that happens in behavioral health. We know that this represents uh, that 4,500, about 40% of the 11,000 people within the San Francisco Health Network who have been diagnosed with a substance use disorder. We think that that's a very high number because nationally only 10% of people 
with a substance use disorder diagnosis receive treatment. Many of, much of that, much of that is because folks don't see themselves in need to get treatment or make behavior change or are not interested in the moment. Some of that 90% is because in the place they live or the insurance they have, there isn't access. So the fact that we are reaching 39% of folks in the network is very good indeed, not that that lets us rest easy. Our wait times to access different levels of care are decreased compared to the fiscal year prior. We estimate that we now are able to get people into withdrawal management or treatment for an opioid use disorder in methadone program within a day. And we estimate that we can get people into residential care in f within four days. That is a decrease from the five to seven in the year prior. However, we've made some additional uh, interventions, innovations in this prior year in that we've established a direct admit pathway from withdrawal management to residential treatment. Approximately 80% of people who enter withdrawal management are admitted without delay to residential. And so that is really a good, uh, important system intervention so that we are not losing people between levels of care. Uh, next slide. And I think I sort of addressed our occupancy rate here, but this is sort of an example of how we think about this within the substance use specific treatment system. Our 94% residential step-down occupancy rate that we report in our treatment on demand report, it was in our view too high. So opening an additional 70 residential step-down beds, which happened since this report, we ought to see uh, a loosening of that occupancy rate so we can are more able to get people into care more quickly. Um, of note, what, I, what we call specialty substance use treatment enrollment has decreased and decreased over time, which is a, a bad indicator. However, uh, buprenorphine prescriptions in the city have increased citywide year over year. And so what has also happened nationally and locally is that we've created more pathways to treatment for people, particularly for opioid use disorder and particularly using buprenorphine. And so we're seeing some ups and downs in the specialty sector of which I am speaking and the primary care and private sectors which are also increasingly offer buprenorphine particularly in the federal context where a special waiver or license to prescribe buprenorphine has been lifted. It means that more providers, more prescribers can enter uh, and treat people with buprenorphine. That lifting of waiver also means in California that clinical pharmacists can offer buprenorphine and treat with buprenorphine. And that is something that we are also planning to take advantage of in the coming year. Um, I offer on this slide as a main measure, the, by no means the only one, of retention in care of 143 days. One of the sort of um, both difficult to measure parts of substance use treatment and impact is that after somebody leaves, you don't always know what happens to them. They're not in care 
we're not funded or have capacity to follow folks into eternity. It's not like primary care where people keep coming back necessarily. So a main measure in substance use treatment is retention in care. And we can see from our Medi-Cal services that our retention rate of 143 days, little less than six months, is a good prognostic sign. We know that the longer people are retained in substance use care from sort of the scientific literature, the more likely it is that they have a positive outcome. What's nice about our system of care also is we can follow people in administrative Dave across levels of care, from withdrawal management to residential to step down. Uh, should those be should that be the pathway? And so that's how we can see that kind of retention rate. Um, we also um, uh, know based on our um, uh, as people are exiting treatment data that. Again, this is, I would say, self-report, but nearly 70% self-reported uh, abstaining entirely or significantly reducing their substance use, another obviously major positive outcome from the work that we do. Next slide. Next slide. Um, ooh, I'm not going to be able to see this. Um, let me. Um, let me just talk about Calium very, very briefly, and there's a lot of detail in that slide. Cal, the impact of, of Medi-Cal reform, as we call it, Cal-AIM uh, in California, is enormous, as I've shared with you, for behavioral health. It is fundamentally changing the way we offer and conduct services, from assessing for need, from documenting what we do, and ideally increasingly pushing us towards outcomes. So that is sort of the fundamentals. Some key things that um, I'll just highlight second from the bottom is we are also trying to take advantage of some of the um, ways in which care is both organized and reimbursed. One example is the BEST team, which I mentioned. Um, uh, uh, which is part of the Office of Coordinated Care. We are participating in what is called ECM or, or um, Enhanced Care Management Services, trying to take advantage of some of the reimbursement structures for work that we are already doing or planning to do. Another example is that our Drug Sobering Center, aka SOMA Rise, was recently approved as one of the, um, again, funded services within CalAIM, so-called community supports. So it's not a clinical service, not necessarily with licensed clinicians there. But by offering this, the idea is, of course, you um, recruit more people into treatment, you engage more people in treatment, you save the health system money by averting emergency department visits. And so the health plan, and the state is interested in funding those kind of initiatives, and we applied for and were approved to have um, uh, SOMA Rise as a community supports program. Next slide. Um, the next thing, and I think last thing to mention, is our upcoming transition to EPIC, the Healthy Electronic Health Record. Our colleagues in the hospital use in, uh, in primary and ambulatory care. This is, um, I guess, the largest expansion of DPH's EPIC electronic health record since 2019. I did not know that. I did not recall that fact. So 
So we are preparing and really preparing now for the launch of EPIC and reminding us all that this affects both DPH-run clinics as well as many, many contracted providers. For those of you who have practiced in primary care settings or hospital settings, as I have, we are used to uh, have learned, sometimes painfully in my case, to work on electronic health record um, that was built for physical health care. Behavioral health, also where I have worked and many of you have worked, really organizes its care very differently, focused on treatment plans and really multi and to our strength, multidisciplinary teams. So this is a huge transition. It is a very daunting one and very exciting one. It means we're gonna be able to communicate across our system and systems of care much more effectively than we have done. Um, and we'll really influence the way we practice and communicate as part of the larger health system. Um, a number, a couple of you asked a question, particularly around confidentiality and EPIC and creating where appropriate uh, protections for patient confidentiality. The building of our, our behavioral health builds of EPIC is very much being guided by the regulatory requirements that we must and want to adhere to. Um, and federal mandates actually stop us from blocking information except at the patient's request. And substance use, as you all likely know, has its own set of special protections and slightly different than the mental health information. We are, understand and I am learning that EPIC has a range of confidentiality tools that can address specific patient concerns and requests for data viewing. And so we are trying to be very mindful and, and patient-centered about, about that. And I think that may be the last slide. Thank you. Um, why don't I pause there? I talked really fast because I've been running all day, um, so I hope not too fast. All right, so uh, commissioners may I check public comment. Yes. Folks on the line, um, we are on item four, the uh, DPH behavioral health services update, which also included the mental health services update. Please let us know if you'd like to make comment by pressing star three. Again, star three. I see no hands, commissioners. Wonderful. Well, are there any questions or comments from commissioners? Commissioner Christian. I guess you can go first. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Hands just went up. I apologize. I don't know what happened. I apologize, commissioners. Um, so at this time, we will start with um, folks who have received accommodation. So if you've not received accommodation from me, there's only two people who did. I see three hands. Please um, take your hand down. And um, Jeanette or Jamie, whoever's working on it, please um, unmute the one hand that's up. Okay. Oh, hi, this is, uh, can you hear me? Yes, Dr. Palmer, go ahead. Oh, hi, yeah, I'm AA, Dr. Palmer. I just, I know uh, there's a number of patients at Laguna Honda that um, apparently no longer need nursing home care, and some of them are behavioral patients, and there's been great difficulty um, placing them. And what worries me is uh, medically sophisticated placements uh, for people that have physical disabilities as well as behavioral health problems. And as you know, um, there's a, a lawsuit going on about a man who was discharged to medical respite 
um, who quickly died um, in 22. And so I would like to be reassured that um, we are um, able to find places because as you know, um, one of the things that got Laguna Honda into trouble is um, the pressure to place people there who would not benefit, uh, not be appropriate for a nursing home and the need to um, create other types of um, accessible facilities in the community. Thank you. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, now let's uh, have hands up for those who have not received accommodation. And I didn't, I didn't ask any if people wanted to speak in the room, um, but please let me know. All right, so there's three hands. Let's just go with uh, two hands. Let's uh, take the first, please. Please let us know that you're there. Hello, commissioners. My name is uh, Norm Zegelman, and I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco and a member of the Gray Panthers. Uh, CMS will not recertify Laguna Honda if SPDHPH persists in using as a destination for behavioral complex people whose care cannot truly be optimized in a nursing home setting or who jeopardize themselves on the other fragile folks in the nursing home. If it's not corrected, we can look forward to more immediate jeopardy citations and ultimately to the loss of our public nursing home. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. And let's go to the next person, the last person. Caller, please let us know you're there. Yeah, thank you. This is Michael Lyon, also from the uh, San Francisco Great Panther. DPH seems to have recognized the mistake of the Ford project and resolved never to uh, let it happen again. But unless the city can provide enough care on all levels for uh, people with mental health issues and substance uh, use issues, the, uh, the situation is likely to happen again. Um, I have to say, if the city is pushing the idea that uh, it's street, street people's fault for not accepting services. When in fact, there are significant weights that large numbers of people are having to have. This is not a good sign. And in a similar way, if the city is starting to go down the path of uh, arresting uh, drug users and recreating these uh, drug wars that were such a disaster for decades. Again, the outlook for uh, keeping Laguna Honda as just a nursing home isn't bright. The one way that uh, it would be possible for um, Laguna Honda to be able to resist these, these trends is if it can remain independent of the city's push to criminalize, uh, criminalize drug use and, and um, blame uh, people with mental health for not accessing services. Thank you. All right, that's the last caller, Commissioners. Thank you. All right, then we'll go to Commissioner's questions and comments. Uh, Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, for a really encouraging report. Uh, lots uh, of changes uh, and lots of progress considering uh, the years that have led up to this particular year when you're able to really focus uh, uh, more on the on the sort of programmatic foundations. Um, one of the sort of big picture questions I had uh, in all of this is, 
because of all of the changes and the expansion of services and all of that, um, it it would appear that uh, this is highly dependent on our being able to fully staff with qualified and trained uh, uh, staff, not just within DPH direct services, uh, but also with our community providers. And then sort of related to that is our, it seems that we have a, a reliance on just a few large providers uh, in this area of service provision. And so I just get concerned about um, how are we really going to be able to accomplish these um, innovations and great goals. So even if there is funding, are there the human resources and facilities available uh, to continue the progress um, that we're envisioning and hoping for over time? Well, I think those are two extremely important fundamental questions uh, that I think about quite a bit. Um, on the staffing front, um, I think we, um, we have learned a lot. We are continuing to learn a lot. There is, as you know and we know, both a national and local uh, dearth of, of people to hire. It isn't a zero-sum game, so that is we have successfully done quite a bit of expansion and brought in more people both uh, to our own staff and, and community-based providers as well. And we are continuing to face vacancies. So I think we have expanded. We will continue to expand. It is not as full or as rapid as I think were there no workforce challenge. We're aiming uh, to address workforce and, conti and continuing, as, as some of you know, very open for ideas and new ways to address it. Uh, we are collaborating very closely with our human resources department. I think as I've described to you all here last year under the Tenderloin Emergency Initiative, we were able to very rapidly hire a large number of people. We have taken a lot of the lessons learned from that period and and implement them to engage in more what we're calling continuous hiring of some key positions, including behavioral health clinicians. I think also what the, the state context is important that there's been some state investments in pipeline work, which we know are not going to see immediate dividends, but over time. I think another important aspect and how we all, in my view, need to be thinking is how do we use other kinds of uh, professionals, including, uh, and I mentioned the pharmacist uh, angle on buprenorphine prescribing as sort of an example of thinking how do we use the great number of health professionals we might to support a person in their journey to wellness. Another example is incorporating uh, peer workforce and people with lived experience as part of care teams as a way to also recruit, create a pipeline as well to extend our capacity. It has warts, what I just described, and is a work in progress. I think the other issue you raise about uh, the number of providers in the space and the need to create opportunities for, for new providers to come into the space wherever possible. 
we have partnered with a number of new providers, providers new to San Francisco, um, and and imagine we'll continue to do so. I'm very happy to continue this conversation. That's definitely an observation that I am aware of as well, is that there isn't an infinite number of community-based providers and having a rich, culturally uh, tailored array of people, uh, providers and organizations delivering services is, is really important. Thank you. I think that, uh, I mean, at some point we have to face the reality though that you know, San Francisco is, is just a difficult place for people to come and live and, and work. Uh, and as we expand services, yeah. uh, we need to recruit people into the city or at least close to the city in order to be able to provide those services. And I do think that um, it's not just the DP, uh, department's problem to solve, yeah. but the reality is the more we expand services, the more we need people and the harder it is to get people here for a number of reasons. You know, uh, rising costs, I mean, just transportation, a whole range of things. And I think that long-term thinking, not just about programmatic services, but how do we get the resources, particularly human resources, to provide those quality services is really got to be built into the strategy. But I appreciate the uh, inventiveness in uh, the learning from uh, the past and other things. And it's also important to know that mistakes are going to be made and we should accept that. Not everything's gonna be perfect, uh, but the long-term um, realities, or at least the midterm realities, uh, is that even if the funding comes, the services might not be able to be provided in the ideal way that we would like. So I'd appreciate all, your, all of your efforts, but I think it would be appropriate and helpful for the commission to understand what the dynamics might be uh, with regard to the need for services, the ability to fund those services, and then the other resources that are or are not available to us in order to achieve those goals. Thanks for that. Commissioner Christian. Thank you. And building on Commissioner Guillermo's question, which uh, is so important and foundational, uh, being able to pay people to live in the city or somewhere near, somehow we need to do things that will enable them to stay, whether it is housing subsidies from the city and maybe from the state, whatever it is. But as Commissioner Guillermo noted, we, if we don't have the, the, the clinicians, uh, the people to do the work, then um, we're already, we've already lost so many people. And so it would be very interesting to hear from the other city departments and from our department what the collaboration is around those issues, uh, not only of retaining people that we're losing now because they, you know, it's just too hard, it's too much. Um, this caseload is exhausting them. Uh, but the pipeline from the young people who are growing up here in San Francisco uh, who are al already live, live here and could be brought into you know, the system. You know, I bring this up at every meeting, uh, but uh, I think it is really critical, especially when we're talking about uh, equity and allowing people, enabling people to be allowed to have a way to grow up in their community and stay in it and live in it and own a home or you know, be able to rent in the city. So 
so, so important and uh, really do look forward to hearing about this every time we, you know, we get the grand opportunity to have you present to us. Um, first, I, I have a, a few questions. I'll try to go quickly. I wanted to know a little bit about the universal talk therapy uh, program that you're doing with HRC. It was slide 11, I think. Can you tell me what that is? Um, yes, and I may need to get back to you with more information, but happy to. It's a program that uh, we uh, developed in conjunction with Human Rights Commission with uh, Mental Health Services Act dollars. These are state dollars in order to increase availability of um, uh, make pr uh, private therapists potentially available to interested uh, San Franciscans who would otherwise not have access. So it was aiming to try to create additional behavioral health access to people who may be underinsured uh, or uninsured. Great, thank you very much for that. And just on the whole uh, idea of culturally congruent initiatives to address racial disparities, uh, fantastic. Uh, and uh, so much looking forward to hearing the uh, next presentation as well. Um, but as we know, um, racism is uh, a detriment to, mental, to, to health. Uh, uh, black African-American people, other people of color uh, die at greater rates uh, and sooner than everybody else. And it, uh, you know, everybody else in the same categories, uh, education, income. I wonder and would like to hear more going forward about um, how DPH uh, and you've been incredibly uh, great at figuring out different ways to approach th this problem, but how DPH partners with other city departments and other you know, entities to address that, the fact of the impact of racism in our society and how it, and that it is a public health issue, one that you know, our doctors can't solve alone and our clinicians can't solve alone. So that's something I'm, um, I'm hoping uh, that the department will will be doing more of as well. Um, I won't take up much more time, but uh, I did want to say that the work that you're doing on the street crisis teams and the the, the BERT, uh, it's not that, that's not correct. Um, best, best, yeah. <laughs> so innovative, so right, so amazing. I just really want to congratulate the department and the and the mayor's office and the city on that because it's addressing so many people, so many needs, and so many people at the points uh, where they need the attention and it's helping the neighborhoods and helping to keep people out of the jails and all of that. So just really wanted to congratulate you on that and thank you for that work. Thanks and I will share that with the, the team who's really behind all of that, so thank you. It's an amazing team, yeah. Commissioner Chow. Yes, thank you and, and thank you for this uh, um, great update. Uh, and, and the enormous amount of work that you're continuing to do uh, and in spite of uh, all the challenges uh, the fact that you're able to hire and so um, and fill so many positions so that it gives you a, a chance to at least uh, put in place your programs. Um, following on Commissioner Christian's questions, uh, I'm uh, struck and had uh, on my uh, uh, table here the slide on street response and care. And my concern isn't that we are continuing to evolve, but that as we evolve, we actually lose the perspective of where we were. 
And I'm hoping that in the presentation, we're able to see the whole range of what is happening. That even though the mayor's office has reassigned and segregated out the uh, different component parts of addressing uh, the uh, street crisis, and we now have this part, and we have BEST, for us to only get a report on BEST and not understand, well, how many of the calls continue to be diverted? How many get answered by the medical people? Where do they go? So I, I'm looking that in our next presentation, you're nodding your head, saying that we, we'd get a comprehensive picture of what is happening on the street, how successful we are, and how best that is, the, your, your uh, program, best I think it is, right? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, is now playing a new, uh, you know, playing its role, and we've given up some, but here's the continued success or challenge that we have. That's my request. That's great. I appreciate the comment, and I agree. And and we'll we'll aim to come back next time with with those data. And I I think I do want to just acknowledge that the 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 program is still in evolution. And I think the our, the city intent our intent is to continue to have the same sort of data that you that we had been sharing with you all. Uh, as well as additional, um, which we have been starting to do, follow-up data, what happens after the, the crisis visit, the street crisis visit as well. So who comes in, and then what happens after there's a contact. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Commissioner uh, Girardo. Thank you very much for your wonderful report. And also, um, I've referred a number of people to the uh, pipeline into the internship Fantastic. and it's really been very helpful and, and successful. My one um, you know, question is, uh, do you collect data on, uh, does the department collect data on uh, those that have been offered mental health treatment and refused? Oh, um, and that was one of my questions, uh, one of the questions I got and I guess it was yours. We. Um, you know, I wanted to go back and didn't have a chance to sort of think about this more deeply. Um, we we don't we don't necessarily can collect on like who declines across the board. One of the things that we've been very interested in, we think it's very important in particular programs like our street programs, where we measure who has accepted a referral. Uh, and sort of against the sort of number of people we've seen who we think are eligible for behavioral health treatment. So we know about it in that way. And I think that we, um, and I wanted to go back and see if we know about it in other ways. So for example, someone gets made a referral but then doesn't show up, is that considered, you know, is that a refusal? We don't really know all the factors that go into that. Um, and so it may be a hard thing to measure with accuracy, but I wanted to go back and speak to the team about what we could dig up about yeah, that. I appreciate it. It was just, I guess, in the news media that 16 were, um, you know, out of jail health uh, and had been offered continued substance abuse treatment, and they all refused. So it... And I know, I mean, what I will say, what we know sort of back to the statistic I cited before, we know yeah. nationally about 10% of people with a diagnosis receive treatment. Right. 
and there's some limits to what we can infer. I think what we also know, and you all know this also, is that many people with an addiction or substance use disorder treatment are what we would call sort of in the behavior change world pre-contemplative, meaning they are not ready to think about making a change in their behavior, including accepting treatment. And it's, uh, we never, you know, it's an ongoing process of engagement and motivation and motivational approaches to encourage people to accept help. Um, and a hard thing to measure in a, in a clinical service. So I will, um, we will come back to you on that. And no, I would the appreciate it. It's just that you always see the department in the treatment beds. Um, it's always the DPH and you know accessibility's fault. But then again, there's never the flip that you know how we, many we are offered, offered and people and decline. do not um, want to access treatment. And so it just is frustrating in the information. And Commissioner, if I could just add for that pilot program that you're referring to, we are are within that shared collaboration. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more in my director's report, but okay. the number of people accepting and refusing treatment in that specific initiative, which is uh, being spearheaded by DEM under the mayor's uh, purview, we are going to continue to collect those data. Commissioner Chow. Yeah, yes, I, I just had one more uh, quick follow-up. I got uh, carried away with the uh, street programs. Um, that uh, Commissioner Christian was talking about. And I forgot to actually thank you for uh, responding to how you are trying to respond to the Asian community's needs. And I'm hoping that we would hear later then uh, how well some of these uh, programs are actually doing in consideration of the fact that, as we know, uh, many of the uh, uh, clients or to-be uh, clients and, and how you are continuing to integrate that with the primary care services that we have uh, over in the Chinatown Hill Center. So I would appreciate uh, getting an update on that. Thank you. Thanks, and if, if there's time, let me just have offer a partial response. I appreciate the question very much. And I think um, uh, Dr. Hammer is in the back and we are very uh, intent on increasingly describing how we bring behavioral health both and integrate it both in primary care and in specialty behavioral health. And I think um, the extent to which we are offering delivering behavioral health services across the city and primary care is a really important piece uh, to this thinking broadly about how we engage people uh, uh, in their own mental health, substance use care, as well as physical health. The other um, thing I'd like to mention also is to your point of how do we how do we know who we are and aren't reaching. There's a need for population level data in the city and it is on my to-do list and part of our hiring approach to get uh, to fulfill, fill up our analyst positions in order to get this kind of population data that actually can give us some targets and measure of need at a population level to know the extent to which we have unmet need and in which communities. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this really excellent presentation. I think on behalf of all the commissioners, we want to thank you, Dr. Kunins, and also the entire BHS staff. This is really encouraging progress. It's so wonderful to hear this innovative thinking. And I, I think, 
you know, obviously behavioral health is a huge concern for the public at large. So I think if we can learn more about how all of the divisions of the city will work together on this huge problem, and also getting some metrics, which I think will help us understand your successes. But I think it's also really important to level set expectations in general, both for the community as well as, as you know, for the department. So we understand better, you know, what, what can be achieved. Uh, Commissioner Gerardo has sort of alluded to that as well. It's a, it's a, it's an extremely complex problem. And, you know, certainly we can already tell from what you presented that you are going to be leading the country in evaluating and initiating some of these programs. And as long as we can get the staff to um, do the work, it sounds like we have some positive information to come in the future. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks very much. Great. Okay, the next uh, item on the agenda is the Office of Health Equity Update. Dr. Ayanna Bennett, who's the director of the office. Hello. Hi, commissioners. It's nice to see you again. It's been a, a long break, so it's good to see you finally. And I am going to respect all of your time. I've been warned. I'm going to stay in my 20 minutes. Um, thank you uh, for your attention again. And I know that you are all um, very interested in this topic, so I appreciate you having me here to talk about it. This is our start. I just wanted to remind us how long we've been at this. That's a very old picture of San Francisco General in its very earliest days. And um, many of our staff from really before I was in this position have long said that, of course, they work in equity. And uh, we do. Everybody does, even when they don't necessarily have that as an intention. But what I want to just level set with us all is that our work to deliver services to people is not um, the end of it. The, the true equity is in how we change the systems and what we're already doing because we are participants in maintaining the inequities themselves. And we're one of the few um, really players in the market of trying to actually change them. We actually have levers we can pull. We actually have some input. So we do equity every day, but actually making change um, to make us more equitable is a little bit of a different set of skills and a different set of activities. Next slide. So we um, have divided this into six principles, really, and goal areas. And I'm not going to go over the details of the updates, which I squished something in there. There's far more in every box. But just to tell you where the work is um, being done, what the intentions are. The first, of course, is to reduce health disparities. That is always the primary goal. That is our um, central mission, is to make people healthier. And we want to make people healthier across the board, not just in average. The next is, and you can see there's some data from primary care in particular, but we also have work happening in all parts of the, our service delivery. Authentic community relationships is next. You have to have the community in cooperation in their own care if we want to do it equitably. And that is both, um, that is not an act of altruism purely. It is also because the ways in which we get people to access care, the ways they, what's, oh, you can't, I'm sorry, I can move over. The way they accept care, the way we make care palatable, but also effective needs that information from community that we don't already have. Some of our staff are community, that really helps us a lot, but we do need that interaction, both to understand what the priorities are, what people want us to do, and to be sure that what we're doing is something that's actually going to be effective. 
The next is a diverse, skilled workforce. By skilled, I mean skilled at doing this equity work. So not well-meaning, but actually well-meaning and knows how to disaggregate their data, knows how to talk to community members, knows all of the things they need in budget and management to make sure that money and attention goes where it needs to go. The next is a sustainable infrastructure. These last are really internal about how DPH works. A sustainable infrastructure means that um, equity, again, moves to something that is part of our everyday work, but it's not there yet. So somebody has to be in charge of paying attention to it. So are you doing it? Be there to ask the question. There have to be people who are going to learn those specialized skills and then teach them to other people. Uh, so we have to have an infrastructure that tells people this is something that's continuing, it's a priority, this is the space you have to ask your questions and learn, and all of those things have been built and we have some good information about how um, that infrastructure is functioning. The next is a culture that prioritizes equity. Everyone puts up statements, <laughs> but really what we need to do is have a system in which people see equity as a priority all the time. They know the department's working on it. They understand that their job is to find what their role is in it, that it is something that is just part of our culture. We've had in the past, just like all places, um, times when it was an uncomfortable thing for people to talk about. You cannot address a problem that you are unable to name. So people being able to say that this is an impact of racism, being able to say that this was not equitable, being able to look at groups within groups and not just to um, paper over with averages or just feel, feel like we're doing <coughs> our best when we really need to get down to the details. And then the last is your role and others, but you in particular, um, is having accountability for progress, to not have um, such a vague sense of what we're doing that no one can hold you to account. So we need to have actual goals, actual metrics, actual meetings and events and things that people can hang their hat on that the work is actually happening. The presentation I'm gonna give you divides a little bit into those areas. I can't talk comprehensively about any of them because there's a lot going on, but I'm gonna give you a sense of how we're working in each of those domains to really move the needle. Next slide. I wanna reorient us to our ultimate health disparity. I came into the department because of work that was done on differences in longevity. So Tomas Aragon had done that study on years of life lost and we saw how big the gaps were and that started the latest iteration of the Black African American Health Initiative which I was brought in to direct and then that turned into something bigger. But that kind of longevity deficit that many of our community are suffering from has not stopped. It is still quite quite there and um, in many ways has been worsened by COVID after having been improved for many years. So that gap that I show you in, that, in the graph is the 21 year gap from the um, 2019 data between uh, Asian women and black men. That's our widest gap. So that means that there are groups in this city whose grandfathers are unlikely to make it into their 70s, which is very wrong. Those are good years that other people are having. The map is um, a longevity map across the city. So the, the darker is the longer living. And you can see that like everything else, our legacy of geographic segregation plays out in longevity too. And you can, like you can in most places in this country, predict how long someone will live by which part of the city they were born in. 
Next slide. Oh, I'm gonna, before you go on, the Native American um, uh, data that you see right there is from a different data set and it didn't divide into men and women. And that is partly because many times that group is small enough that we don't track them at all. And so um, we're tracking very hard to get ourselves as a department not to do that anymore. And so I put them on there, not quite in the same way, not quite from the same data, made a note of it, but it, it should be there that it is not, um, it is, a, that is a group that is suffering from inequities. And I, I wanna be sure we start to tell ourselves that as our Pacific Islanders, the many subgroups within that Asian umbrella that actually hides quite a lot of poverty and disparity. So just we're, we're trying to move towards that needle. It's, it takes some time, but I'm hoping the data you see going forward will be better. Next slide. What you're going to see on disparities um, are multiple projects. This one is the closest to, I think, launching. So I wanna talk about it, but it is a model for what we hope to do in the other, particularly the small populations or subpopulations. So we had two processes in, in parallel. We've been having an internal planning group for a little over a year around black health and priority setting and then um, we've had multiple recommendations come out of community groups around the same topic. So that planning group, I'm not gonna talk about everything it's done, but we pulled together Kaiser, first it was uh, DPH and UCSF Health, basically in a bunch of meetings alone. And then we brought in community members, some CBO leaders, Kaiser came on board, um, someone from HSA, trying to make a multi-city agency because we've got social determinants and health to deal with, multiple health systems and multiple community groups all together. That initial partner meeting is probably going to be in July. We're, Juneteenth kind of messed me up a little bit and so we're gonna try to do that in July. And what we're doing is focusing on all of those recommendations and the work that group did with ethnographic study and doing the research and really looking at what are the drivers that we, based on research to look at, based on the ethnographic study with black elders, what should we be focused on, what's actually impacting people's lives, what's actually making them joyful and, and thriving. And so those two things go together um, actually quite well because the community was focused on really many of the same things that the research and our DPH staff wanna focus on. Next slide. So one way we're presenting that um, set of recommendations that come both out of that group and research and out of the community is just trying to lay it out in what ways do, they, do those recommendations kind of cluster. And many are around physical health and wellness, sort of access to clinics, access to, to the kind of um, help that people are looking for for their illnesses that they already have and the preventive services we already deliver. Behavioral health and joyful living so we've been told many times not to just focus on the negative. We had those two together and sometimes they were, they were discussed together, but partly because of the opioid issues that have risen um, so aggressively, we've pulled them apart. They really are two domains that, that should work together, but two domains. The other is healthy communities, which is of course everything we do, but also what our partners do. It's transportation, it's environmental cleanup, it's um, violence, it's things that, the circumstances in which people live which we know well, and then a workforce. So having a workforce that um, we know from the research, it actually has impacts on the way in which people um, accept care. It has 
impacts on what kind of care is offered, unfortunately, and how that care um, is successful in helping people or not. So having that workforce is gonna take some things. So whether that's loan repayment or recruitment or what are the practical solutions we as health systems um, can work on together because we need those people in the city or around the city or near the city. It almost doesn't matter at this point whether or not they go to Kaiser or to DPH. It does, we care, but we all need to work together to find a solution because it's a problem we all are sharing at this point. Um, I don't think there's black psychiatrists abundantly in any system. We're, we're all searching for them. We're all searching for the same people. So how do we solve that problem? And then the last is making sure that this whole structure has some accountability to it. Um, we have recommendations from the African-American um, Reparations Committee and the Subcommittee on Health. We have recommendations from the Unity Council and many others. We wanna be sure that this structure is answering back to those people, um, that there's actual data, that we're all agreed on what metrics. And so that is the body that we're hoping to launch. Um, and the behind that means that we have to internally coordinate our work. So there is work on black health happening everywhere. We have definitely seeded that throughout the department, but how do we make that more collective and impact? So how do we make it um, you know, communal and, and reinforcing? Next slide. I'm gonna go more quickly with some of the other things. So community relationships, we did, um, we've been working on that for about the same amount of time. Uh, also based in some research that was done, both mapping out what's happening in the department already. You can see in that graph are all the things that we um, were able to document are happening in the department. An ethnographic interview study was done with CBO leaders to ask about what their relationship with the department was and kind of how that was functioning. Those two things together give us a bit of a roadmap of things that need to be worked on and a real set of things that people are already quite happy with and that we need to be sure that we maintain. For example, learning co communities, we set up many groups where we pull CBOs and others together to learn about trauma-informed systems or something that wasn't something they would automatically have may maybe learned on their own and how do we bring that into the system? And we, we serve that role and we should continue to, but we also need to work on our councils and other things that maybe um, need a little more help. Next slide. Just I'm gonna give you one concrete thing that um, relates to that work. So much of what was said um, was about how um, much people value and really want greater connection, both with our staff and with our leadership. They are very complimentary of the staff they are connected with, but the feeling of whether or not the manager actually understands their community, whether or not the person in contracts understands their community is not as clear. So we are starting in June think in two weeks, um, neighborhood tours that our community health workers are going to do. Um, and we're gonna, once we figure out the compensation, roll in some residents and patients to that. And just moving around the neighborhoods and looking at what are the historical things that you should know about this place? What are the um, health relevant grocery stores or other things that are my resources or not? Can we go to the Walgreens and see whether that's a, a place that people are really able to use? They're starting in Bayview, but they'll do all nine of the priority neighborhoods we established during COVID, and they'll do one, two a month, I think, going forward and, and finish out the year. Those are going to be first focused on our clinical staff. So the first partnership is with primary care. We have many, many clinical staff who 
um, are very um, open to the neighborhoods, but not necessarily experiencing much of them and not necessarily understanding the context of what people are telling them when they're trying to take care of them. And that's a really important context to have. So we're gonna take our doctors and nurses and other clinical staff out into the neighborhoods around the clinics they work in. Um, and we're gonna take leadership and managers. So all the exec staff you know, from past have a requirement of doing an hour a year. Part of the reason I put that in place was so that we could start to do these things that were structured, structured time. So um, we'll have some of our exec staff on, on those tours. Hopefully we'll move that down to have our directors and managers who are directing people in the field, but not necessarily themselves getting a lot. Uh, and a little bit more a leadership hiring process. We've really now used it several times, having community um, panels to help interview uh, people who are going to be executives or direct reports to executives in the department so that we're getting a real sense of whether or not people have a sense of relation to the community, whether or not they, they have that facility, and having equity statements and other things to really get a sense of who, who can step into this work most fully. Next step, next slide, please. Our workforce activities are many. Um, I'm not gonna go over all the REAP overview. There's a progress report that's been posted for the board. I just wanna talk about this one. The hiring and retention areas in discipline as well are all behind some of the other work we've done. We've done a lot in those areas. So hiring guidelines, changes in our recruitment, we've got new recruiters. Many things have been done. The reason they're at 50% is that so much of the work we planned is data dependent and the data system did not exist. And so they are just, I think the, they're just rolling out the first dashboards to really be able to say who is coming in to our system in terms of applicants, where are we losing them if we are, maybe they're not there in the first place, and what is the, the way in which our process, the time it takes, all of those things are either hurting us or, or not in terms of being able to keep diversity in our pools onto, onto our hiring. So though, and that's the same for retention and discipline. Those data systems are built and uh, we will start to use them. But until that happened, many of those goals around moving metrics what weren't possible. Next slide. We've talked about most of the stuff that's happening in these areas before, so I'm gonna move ahead. Next slide. So infrastructure has grown quite a bit. Um, there are uh, many more FTE than there were. That is the um, org chart for the Office of Health Equity. There was, when I first arrived, I was kind of a department of one for a while there. So that is um, uh, really, really exciting to me to be able to see the functional areas, which are community engagement and quality improvement in our services, our workforce, um, both culture and um, workforce training and our data systems and reporting, having those all actually be represented by staff and it has had an impact. We are we're actually moving quite a many, many things that were planned will be get moved around this summer. So there are many FTEs, every area has some dedicated staffing at this point. So there is no, there shouldn't be any employee who doesn't have some um, line to somebody whose job it is to make sure that equity is happening in their area. Next slide. Uh, we assess the infrastructure every year, and the infrastructure is several things. It's one, just do you have the basic um, 
you know, equity on your agendas and basic things that, that are the run of the mill. Is it, an, is it a priority and do people know about it? Do you have training? But also, are you staffed? Do you have a budget? And are you actually doing any activities? So that also includes, do you have, um, do you have metrics that you're following around health or around um, workforce, et cetera? So there are three different areas, normalizing, organizing, and operationalizing that cover those, those domains. And we have had the divisions rate themselves every year for the last now four. They uh, rate themselves on a, their 41 different items and they say whether they have it or not, whether it's starting through sustained, and that sustained means it's fully functioning and it's been there for several years. So five would be the, the top of that scale. So getting a five on average in every area would add up to 15. So we're getting very close with the SFG. We have had improvement in every area. You see some plateaus and um, wobbles there, and that is almost always related to staffing, either from deployments um, or from just staffing losses that we've had. People try to be very honest on that, and so they don't count themselves as having a program that is not running because they don't have staff for it anymore. And then it comes back, and then they're back. So I do think that we are maybe even further ahead in some of those areas because you actually aren't starting from scratch if you have an unstaffed program, but you have a program and people understand it. But there is progress. It is faster in some areas because of resources and how long they've been at it. But it really does look like um, what you'd expect over time. So the SFG, Laguna Honda, and BHS were probably the first. Primary care and jail health and MCA age and PhD all come second. PhDs had a lot of issues around deployments. They've had between COVID and monkeypox and one thing after another, um, it has had an impact. But all across the board, we're moving forward. I score OHE and DPH kind of widely also, and we're at about the same level as uh, ZSFG maybe a year ago. So we started at ZSFG and then started the wider program as other divisions came on board. So still moving quite far though, at about, I'm putting it at almost 13 out of 15. So we've got a lot of things in place. I'm gonna finish soon. Next slide. Almost done. Staff engagement survey was done this year. Um, we were very anxious for it. The last one was 2019. It was meant to be 2021 was bumped because of COVID issues but we have seen change over that time. These are just the six equity questions that we've asked over those two, those two time periods. Actually, there was a small one in 2020, and we have seen improvement in every area. More people say they're working on equity, more people say the department's working on equity, which is very important to me. We have a lot of fatalism from past failures and um, uh, things that our staff have wanted but haven't seen yet, so them saying the department is working on it is a really positive step, that people are being more hopeful. So across the board, we really are seeing improvements, and I, I, um, it is a central metric for me in terms of whether or not equity is working, is whether people are, are actually working on it and think that the rest of us care about it. Next slide. A little more focus, there were 40, 45 questions, I believe. Some of them were specific to clinical care. Not all of them showed up to be real drivers. Some of them um, are, you know, everybody scored roughly the same on those. These are just a few of those that were real drivers. Um, my division is taking active steps to improve racial equity. Um, I feel comfortable talking about race and racism in the workplace and managers in my department treat all staff, um, treat all racial ethnic groups with respect. 
So those three are three of our equity questions. There are many others. We have disparities on every question, whether or not it's about something that sounds like equity or not. But those disparities are in many ways a little better than they were last time we looked. So I pick those three because they are the three that show most clearly the jump in that um, target was really about the jump in the black staff's rating. They have been rating <laughs> consistently the lowest, and I think that's legitimate based on differences in experience. But they also had the, the greatest um, improvements in their ratings. So I'm hoping that that means that some of that work that we're doing around um, trying to improve respectful treatment between staff, trying to make sure everybody understands what equity is and that we're actually going to take it seriously has really borne some fruit. Because once we get everybody on board, we'll do much more effective work than we were when people were not sure this was real. Next slide. Last one is accountability. And I um, want to bring you back to your uh, resolution in 2020 um, that you did around health equity and uh, racism. There were 10 elements that we were meant to be getting done from that resolution. We've been tracking them. We've done five of them, I think, fairly completely. Uh, and you can see them there. We've funded and expanded the office. We've done the REAP. We work with the Office of Racial Equity. We've got training. Everyone gets oriented to equity and also has training hours per year, all of that. The others that haven't been done, some of them are based on either staffing or data, both of which are really just coming in in the last year. So I think all of those in the next fiscal year will be able to be completed too. So it took us four years, but I think we will have, have completed everything that you were asking us to do. And I think those were all really foundational, um, foundational things for the department. So that is the end. Next slide is just a question. So any questions? Oh no, actually Mark, go ahead. And um, Dr. Jump. Bennett, did you want to introduce uh, the, the new staff person that you have? That, uh, 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 Deputy Director? No, I have so many <laughs> new staff people for oh, them. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I do have, uh, most of the staff is new to you. So there are two. There's my data manager, uh, Anastasia, and our policy director. And uh, we've got both policy and data happening, which is very exciting for me. Jenny Chacon is still on. Oh, there she is, a little corner, um, is the deputy director who's come on. She um, is leaving very sadly for them as equity officer in the administrator's office in the city of Hayward. She worked here for many, many years before she left to do that work and work in Marin. So we're glad to have her back. She's quite familiar with the department and this is her work. So I think we're very lucky to have her. Thank you, Mark. Oh, sure. Thank you for this wonderful presentation. It's a tremendous undertaking. And um, we very much welcome the new staff and certainly all the work you've done. It's, it's really clear that the goals are very well crystallized and that the path forward is, is, is fairly well defined. So thank you, thank you so much. Are there public comments? Yes, we have a person in the room. And I will have, I have a timer and when the time buzzer goes off, please know that's time to wrap up your comments. Yes. Uh, Robert Reinhardt from the San Francisco Black and Jewish Unity Coalition. Um, Dr. Colfax, commissioners, and Dr. Bennett, thank you for your April reply to our presentations about the gap in uh, life expectancy between black residents and the rest of the population. The continuing disparity in San Francisco ranks as the worst among all counties in California, despite 
the efforts you are marshalling to improve the health of black people. Shocking data keep coming in major new studies from the American Medical Association. In 2018, racial and ethnic health disparities cost the U.S. economy $451 billion, 40 in California, and most of the economic burden for racial and ethnic disparities was borne by black African populations due to the level of premature mortality. In the second study, over a 22-year period, the black population in the United States experienced more than 1.6 million excess deaths and more than 80 million excess years of life loss when compared with the white population. There was a period of progress which stalled and got worse, and a lot of that was due to COVID, but also to heart disease, cancer, assaults, diabetes, cerebrovascular disease, and in black women, maternal mortality. You must feel as badly as we do that the list of the DPH programs, despite those, the situation is wrong. We made our previous request knowing about the important programs you've heard about today, but let's look at a little bit of the numbers that you came back to us with. You point out that black African-Americans received COVID vaccinations comparable to other citizens and at higher rates than elsewhere. How many died? 9.1% of all local COVID deaths, related deaths, came from the black population in a group comprising 5% of the city's population. That was the worst tally in the city's relative population, by, by relative population level in the city. We just heard an important report about um, overdose deaths. In 2020, blacks as a percentage of all those deaths was 25%, 28% in 22, and in this year so far, 33%, according to the San Francisco Medical Examiner. The absolute number of black people dying from accidental overdose remained about the same, but the city's overall population, black population declined. So do these numbers suggest a need for a more um, inclusive uh, approach of differentiated care, taking race and ethnicity into account, even more so than the comprehensive um, numbers that you've heard uh, from Dr. Um, Kunin's and in, you'll hear in the San Francisco budget report. Please wrap up the sentence. Um, you, and I guess what I'd like to say um, is that we've heard information today I'm sorry, about your, your, your challenges time is up. and evolution. We want you to consider this an emergency not just a practical program, something that needs the attention I'm sorry, your that time happened is up. during the COVID emergency. Thank you. Folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment, please press star three. Yes, yes, of course. And please feel free to email me your comment so that I can pass it along to the commissioners so that they can. Okay, thank you. No, of course. Uh, I see no hands on the remote. All right. What about commissioner questions and comments? Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, Dr. Bennett. Uh, again, for I know it's been a while, but uh, always glad to hear your presentations and uh, really happy to see that there's been some progress uh, that was sort of unanticipated given the challenges uh, that we've had the last couple of years. Um, just a couple of practical questions. and. Um, I was wondering that the data 
dependency uh, that you say is necessary, I think is a really important part of this. And so I'm glad to, to know that you're being very careful about moving ahead with program design and implementation until you feel comfortable with the amount of data and the quality of the data that you're getting. Uh, one of the things I was curious about is, uh, particularly with the racial and ethnic data, is are we capturing multi-race data? Because the population of San Francisco is quite multi-ethnic, multi-race. And so, particularly with the younger generation, um, there is also, I think, a different way that they look at race and ethnicity than those of us who've been involved with uh, equity issues for a long time. And so I'm just sort of wondering how that data gets reflected and what the nuances are uh, that come into play uh, as you're looking at that data and applying it to the programmatic design and services delivery. So that's one question. Mm -hmm. And then the other question had to do with the workforce. Um, I, I go on, I try to go on to the um, recruitment. Um, it's very confusing actually, because I it think that uh, the websites are changing and then there are things that keep saying forbidden you can't go on them, and so you don't know which website. Mm -hmm. But um, the uh, SF uh, uh, HR uh, um, website is pretty navigable, but I don't see the reflection of all of the equity um, and diversity efforts, particularly that DPH has and that you talk about, reflected in that website. So I'm just wondering, are there other ways uh, to get that word out? Because given what we're doing, and the leadership that you're showing, it's it's um, and per our previous uh, discussion with Dr. Coonan, being able to recruit um, quality, skilled, trainable uh, folks uh, that reflect the populations that we're most concerned about is so critical. But if the website's not navigable mm -hmm. or it doesn't reflect those efforts, then it kind of uh, not that it goes for not, but it's not as effective as it could otherwise be. So um, I'll take the second one first. I'm not sure I can fix the DHR <laughs> website issues, but um, just like the data question, we're not waiting for that. So we didn't wait for the data, but I can't tell you something's better without it. So I don't give myself credit for it, but we didn't wait. So um, if you actually gotten one of those DPH announcements and were able to click on it, there's a link to a video that talks about how we care about equity. It shows the faces of different staff talking about their experience in the department. And so that's attached to all of them. Um, there's also a statement about how we care about equity, both um, and how we approach equity put on job announcements and as a statement before your interview. So it is infused through the process. It, isn't necessarily rising above the level of our own individual announcements, which is a problem. But that is a shared problem by, by us and other parts of the city, which I think the Office of Racial Equity is really trying to focus us all um, on having some shared goals with DHR on that. The first question on data um, is an interesting one because it's actually interesting and state-of-the-art for equity, I think. So we've had, um, some research, and it, it um, was really, I think, most moving in COVID, but also locally about how to define groups and um, the way we've done it as if they are static is probably not useful. 
particularly for our small populations. So for example, if you do, um, if you define Pacific Islander as anyone who put Pacific Islander, not just people who put Pacific Islander and nothing else, the group's quite a bit bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it looks different in terms of whether people got vaccinated and what their COVID rates were. The same is true for um, our uh, Native American population. Uh, there's a reason they feel like their population is bigger than we say it is, because it is bigger than we say it is. People's actual communities are not based on boxes. And so you can have one parent who's in a different group, but you socially are with this group, or at least some of the time. And so how we do that, what the um, kind of agreed on rule we can all come to so that it's not just chaos, we're still working on. But that is part of what... Um, I think will get worked out in the next community health needs assessment, which OHE is doing with um, the Population Health Division, to try to answer some of those questions and make some of those determinations. My uh, policy friend back here is going to help us to write a new policy around what we do with race and ethnicity and how we define those and when we should um, look differently at it, as long as, in addition to our um, sexual orientation and gender identity policy. So it's an interesting question, and I, I think we're going to be forced. But the data is showing that it matters. It actually changes what the data looks like. And it's probably a closer reflection of what people are seeing in their houses and their neighborhood than what we were doing before. I appreciate your uh, sensitivity to that. And obviously, I mean, it's something that you're probably much more familiar with than, than I am. And so I appreciate and look forward uh, to how you might help us also understand uh, those sort of non-distinctions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and how they are impacting the policy, the decision-making that needs to happen, uh, as well as the resource allocation, because it's just, I mean, it, it's the future. I, I, I really do believe that uh, the, the complications with identification uh, are uh, just gonna continue to confound us uh, as we try to uh, create the best solutions. And, and one of the things that, um, I, you know, I don't know how much the community is involved in helping you make those non-distinctions or those categorizations, but again, it'd be very interesting to hear how generationally yeah. uh, uh, those are being, the, they're being defined and are being promoted. And how we refer to people and who's in the crowd when we decide. Yeah, we are. Um, we're going to have some focus groups and some community meetings around um, both those questions, but also trying to set some community priorities and trying to set that as a model that we kind of touch base with you every few years at the very least around what we can plan for you. Commissioner Chab. Uh, yes, th thank you for um, this uh, tremendous update. And uh, I, my only comment, uh, which is related only as an example from the life expectancy, as, as we were talking about, disaggregating the Pacific Islanders gives you a different picture away from the Asians. But um, as, um, as we all know, the Asian population isn't homogeneous either. Um, for years, we've known that there's been a bimodal distribution related, of course, to some of the socioeconomic issues and immigration and uh, and so uh, there also is a uh, bimodal and then there is also within the different Asian segments mm -hmm. uh, themselves so if we are going to do health disparities within that group it's really important to do subgrouping of yes. that group 
uh, it isn't just that. Everybody's got X diabetes, right? Because diabetes is worse in Y and uh, versus A. Yes. Uh, and so as you're focusing on that and you're coming to that, I, I know that, you know, you probably remember, I'm just trying to uh, uh, just put that reminder back in that the Asian group is also not a homogeneous group. And, and I realize the Latino isn't, but it's really even more accentuated within, um, you know, East Asians, South Asians, so forth, uh, along with I think the we're there. Uh, I think what, what's needed, one, so I think you'll see that going forward. I think we as an industry are grappling with complexity because the, as the, we try to get more and more effective, we have to get closer and closer to reality, and reality is far more messy and as far more categories. I mean, there's, there are divisions between what we're calling black, right? Those, are, those yeah. are not necessarily one community, none of them are. And it's health relevant because some of those groups smoke differently than other groups. Some of those groups have different um, eating habits. Some of those groups are treated differently than other parts of their group. So um, I think we're there in terms of the belief system. I don't know that we're there in terms of agreeing on how to do that and that it's going to happen across the board. Um, but I'm try we're trying to get there. So I think the next iteration um, of some of the data you're seeing, I'm hoping will start to show that. We're able to show it at least now because we do ask people not to fill out one box, but to tell us what country and a little more detail. We allow them to check more than one thing. So the underlying data is there now. What's missing is some um, really professional agreement between us about the need to do it and how to do it so that there's some consistency. We're just kind of in a transition period. But the fact that we've got the data now, I think is is a giant first step. Right. I, I think professionally, they've got to recognize, and, and there are uh, good examples even within the Asian community in terms of working on diabetes and working on cancer, and that certain segments, rather than hitting all Asian yeah. groups, it was clear that uh, it wasn't as important, perhaps, to work on diet. Matter of fact, that's how the Pacific Islanders really got segregated out. There would have been really an, an important, a, a wrong message to them on BMIs, for example. Yes. And, and likewise, uh, there are certain uh, subgroups that are much more predominant with diabetes than other subgroups, so that you could be uh, not uh, uh, you know, hitting uh, your targets with the best resources for where the best uh, issues were. So I, I'd encourage that if, if you're having trouble from a professional standpoint, they should really be looking at that literature and uh, uh, understanding why segregation really will uh, uh, actually be helping to hone in where the best advantages are, uh, best opportunities are in order to meet those disparities. Well, as we have not unlimited resources, oh, yes. we're going to have exactly. to be more and more effective, which means we're going to have to get closer and closer to yeah. where people actually are willing to do. All right. So, so you're right. Thank the you. data is yeah. really important. And, and I just want to there. You can ask the question now. Bring this back. <laughs> you can ask the question now, and somebody could find you the data okay. about what that subgroup is doing. Great. Whether or not we have the researchers and we can do it yet, I don't know. But the data is actually there. So the Thank questions are, are possible. It's a good step. Next one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good to see you, Dr. Bennett. Thank you for your work. Uh, it is so important. Um, so 
necessary, so groundbreaking. Uh, can you help me with uh, slide four? I just want to make sure I understand. It's the health disparities, black health priorities setting a model. Yes. So on the um, right-hand side, as you're facing the page, it says review of community input, and on the left-hand side, planning group. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding what's happening here on the slide. Is the community input, that is the input that you've received from the yes. community that led to what you've done in the planning? No. So they were happening concurrently. So um, some of it came to you, some of it came to Director Colfax. Um, while we were internally starting a process, kind of a, a, a little bit more contained process, because we were going to go through a bunch of research, which is a little bit maybe not the largest um, group process. Uh, at the same time, there was a conversation starting in community so that Mega Black was putting these things in their budget. They had a whole health section that the reparations committee had a whole health section about black health. So they're happening concurrently. We were concurrently asking the questions while they were delivering their input. And so we're trying to now bring it all together. Um, but it, it wasn't us that sparked that. We're trying to take what we were already doing because we were already reading that this was something that was an issue and we wanted to be involved in with what people are actually telling us to do, which I think is the best way and where we have the priority and are trying to understand what the background is and where we can bring our expertise to it um, and understanding what community is saying and how do those things go together. Thank you. And under the planning group section where you say, uh, for instance, contracted a national research review of major contributors to black longevity and effective interventions. And so you have that review. I do. And you are using its results to uh, inform slide five. Yes, we've we had some presentations of it for staff or, or community members. We have shared it with a few different groups um, at UCSF, and I think we finally sent it to the reparations committee. I'm not totally sure. Um, and then the ethnographic study, we did the same thing. So that was a researcher who had already done an ethnographic study of patients at Southeast Health Center and how they were relating to the clinic, and it, it really did have some eventual impact on how they did their pharmacy visits and a few other things, did another set with black elders with a different focus, kind of not the clinical, but the, the community sample and what, what were their health behaviors and life like and priorities and how were they actually being healthy and joyful. And it was meant to be successful seniors. So people who were actually feeling like they were doing everything that they could and, and were satisfied with how things were going. What is it that they have? Thank you. Is there access to this research um, for the community, for, for us to have? So we um, actually contracted with and compensated a set of CBOs to bring people to hear about the research. And we did a couple of events. Um, we, I, am, I have not shared it widely, partly because I'm trying to get the partner, I'm trying to move it through these uh, partner conversations to get people onto this. But yes, we should. I think it would be um, incredibly helpful and very important to moving the work forward generally, but especially in the community and engaging all of us who live in the city on these issues. And so we can see ourselves in, these, uh, in this problem and where we can try to have an effect on it. So I, I, I really would very much like to have that, that opportunity for the community at large and um, 
you know, time allowing maybe some presentation <laughs> to the commission, but I think if there was an, uh, an overall community access that we could attend, that would be helpful. I have, I will say one thing. We have been told by their various parts of the community that um, people are tired of us telling them how terrible things are and that they want us to tell them that one, what's good, one, what's bad, and then what we're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. So that is part of the wait was about what are we doing about this. It's not a long wait because I think it's just a few months, but I do want to be able to very rapidly tell people, yes, that's true, and these are the things that we as a community, us, Kaiser, whoever, plan to do to address this. Well, I certainly trust the priorities you're setting, um, and I do think that that this information can be presented in a way that is not like how bad things are. It's like, this is what we've learned. And so you, you read in the New York Times or wherever else you read that, you know, there's this um, weathering and the loss of life. And so this is what we've learned about things we might be able to begin to do about it. But uh, looking forward to whenever that happens and in the way that you believe that it should. And thank you so much for all of this. Welcome. Yeah, I guess I have one question and that is, can you elaborate a little bit on the uh, collaboration with UCSF? Because as you know, UCSF has really been leading the nation in calling out racism in healthcare. And I know they've developed a lot of innovative approaches. So I'm wondering, as, as we're trying to work through some of the things Commissioner Christian's speaking of, they have done so much work. They have been published, as you know, multiple times in the New England Journal. I think across the country, their thinking and their work is being used as a, an example um, for others to follow. So how can we best tap into our whole community resource, including this amazing work there? So um, who we're partnering with are um, a two heads of their Black Health Initiative. One is the uh, equity officer, essentially, for UCSF Health, Dr. Malcolm John, and the other is Dr. Jonathan Butler, who's a researcher and on the research side. Um, they are bringing those two groups together to try to um, work with us and whoever else we can get to the table to talk about um, how we each can play our role. It's really meant to be collective impact. So how can we shape the research that they're doing to fit um, and really encourage the work we want to see here? How can they shape their work around their actual clinical services to work with what we're trying to do in community. So that is that is the pathway. And it was Dr. John and I who were first trying to figure out a way, something we can do together. Um, so I do think that that they are both trying to be a, a, a leader, but also trying to do something that we all want them to do, which is look locally at how does any of that benefit any of us. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for everything you've done, Dr. Bennett, and please on our behalf, thank everyone in the Office of Health Equity and also all the equity champions throughout yes. the DPA. Yes, there are many. Um, we're so impressed by those we see at ZSFG, and I will definitely report at the staff uh, meeting tomorrow that um, they're uh, on the top of the group in terms of their success in equity. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you all. All right, the next item on the agenda is the charity care report from Max Gara, who's the senior health program planner. Thank you. 
And before we begin, thank you for your patience, uh, Mr. Guerra and hospital partners. Thank you, uh, Secretary Morowitz. Um, good evening, commissioners. My name is uh, Max Guerra, and I'm a senior health program planner with the Office of Policy and Planning. Uh, today, I'll be presenting on uh, the fiscal year 2020-2021 charity care report. Uh, a draft of this uh, report was first presented to the Finance and Planning Committee on May 2nd. Um, I'd like to thank the members uh, uh, of the committee for their feedback, uh, as well as other commissioners who had questions and comments on the, the report ahead of this meeting. Um, we've integrated this feedback into the report, uh, which I'll discuss throughout the presentation. Um, and I'll also address several of the questions that came up uh, ahead of today's meeting. Um, I want to mention that I'm joined today, uh, as uh, the Secretary noted, uh, by uh, several hospital, hospital representatives who participated in the work group, uh, and um, they may be available or should be available to answer uh, questions about trends uh, for their specific hospital if needed. Uh, next slide, please. So for this presentation, um, I'll first provide background on the charity care ordinance and review the charity care landscape in San Francisco, and then I'll go into the annual report and provide information on citywide and hospital-specific charity care trends. And then finally, I'll end with uh, state and federal policy uh, changes that, that may be impacting charity care trends uh, in the future in the city. Um, I want to note that due to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the emergency response by the San Francisco Department of Public Health, uh, the reporting process was delayed. Uh, and therefore, both 2020 and 21, uh, 2021 data are combined into this uh, singular annual, annual report. Uh, next slide, please. So the Charity Care Ordinance in San Francisco was passed by the Board of Supervisors in 2001, and at the time, this law was the first of its kind in the nation. Uh, this ordinance helps to increase transparency and accountability around charity care uh, by requiring hospitals to report charity care data to DPH annually, and also to notify patients of free and discounted services. There are eight hospitals that are required to report their, or that report their data to DPH annually. Um, I should note that five of these hospitals are required to report per the ordinance. Uh, these are St. Mary's, St. Francis, uh, Chinese Hospital, CP CPMC Van Ness, and also CPMC uh, Mission Verbal Campus. Um, three hospitals report their uh, data voluntarily, and these are Kaiser, UCSF, uh, and Zuckerberg San Francisco General. Um, I wanted to note that uh, some hospitals report data on a fiscal year uh, and some report on a calendar year. So therefore data um, and the analysis in, the re in this report covers a time period that spans from July 2019 uh, to uh, December uh, 2021. So with these eight hospitals together, uh, DPH is able to more accurately capture uh, citywide uh, charity care trends. Uh, with regards to uh, the notification requirements, uh, every other year, DPH staff uh, visits at each hospital to conduct a review of the facility's compliance uh, with the requirements. Uh, and this year, DPH staff visited, visited each of the reporting hospitals, and all hospitals were found to adhere to the notifi uh, notification requirements, uh, providing verbal notification of charity uh, care policies to patients, and also posting uh, physical signage throughout the, the hospital facility. Mr. Guerra, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm having difficulty hearing you. I don't know whether it's the microphone, your proximity to it. All right. Um, maybe I'll move this closer. Oh, sure. Close. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not sensitive anymore. Just get, uh, you can get it. You can get close. Okay. Is this a is this a better Much audio? Better. Yes. And and Much you can better. pull it closer to you, Max, if it's better for you too. Let's see if this works. I can actually hear it through the speakers now too. 
Actually, um, next slide. There we go. Thank you. So before I start on the report, I want to highlight some of the events that have occurred since the passage of the ordinance that have impacted uh, the charity care in the city. In 2007, uh, the Healthy San Francisco program was started. Uh, this is the city's health access program that provides uninsured residents access to health care services. Uh, in uh, 2010, the Affordable Care Act was passed, and in subsequent years, uh, preparation was conducted on the act's implementation. In 2014, uh, ACA implementation began, and since then, we've observed an increase in health insurance coverage through the Medi-Cal expansion and Covered California, uh, and this has been highlighted in previous uh, year's reports. Um, from 2017 to 2019, there were continuous efforts at the federal level to undermine healthcare access and the ACA. Uh, this included the repeal of the individual mandate penalty uh, and changes to uh, public charge rules. Um, and um, then um, in 2020 to 2021, we saw the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as a new federal administration uh, that resulted in a variety of uh, federal and state policy changes. Uh, and so the report presented today uh, covers the data from this time period, um, and I'll discuss the impacts from these events in relation to uh, the city's healthcare system and also uh, trends in uh, charity care. Um, at the end of the presentation, I'll discuss changes on the horizon that could be impacting uh, charity care um, um, trends in the city. Uh, next slide, please. So moving on to the report itself, uh, the report provides a high-level overview of charity care for our city and also showcases how trends are experienced differently by the eight reporting hospitals. Uh, data is presented on both healthy San Francisco and traditional charity care patients. Uh, again, traditional charity care is defined as care provided to under and uninsured patients who are not enrolled in healthy San Francisco. Uh, and healthy San Francisco is a program created by local ordinance designed to make health care services available and affordable uh, to uninsured San Francisco residents. Um, and so for the, this report, uh, hospital representatives from uh, all eight uh, institutions were engaged to discuss uh, uh, the draft uh, prior uh, to presenting to the Health Commission. Uh, and lastly, I want to, as I mentioned at the start of the present, uh, presentation, again, due to COVID-driven delays, uh, the report combines uh, two years' worth of reporting data. Uh, next slide, please. So this slide highlights uh, the three main uh, findings we found based on an analysis of the data, and I'll go through each of these in subsequent slides, uh, providing more information. So first, uh, we continue to see that charity care serves the uninsured, uh, those with public and commercial uh, coverage, and those most likely to experience uh, health inequities. Um, second, the report observed an overall increase in charity care patients and expenditure citywide, but a decrease in charity care patients uh, for many hospitals during the reporting period. And, and again, I'll be discussing uh, factors uh, contributing to these trends in a moment. Lastly, we continue to observe distinctions between Healthy San Francisco and the traditional charity care uh, patient program populations. Next slide, please. So the next set of slides describe who is receiving traditional charity care. Uh, the graph on the left shows uh, the reported residents of traditional charity care patients. Um, San Francisco residents continue to be a majority of charity care recipients. Uh, data also show that a large number of patients are homeless or have unknown um, addresses at around 10%. Um, and I want to note on this slide since I received a question that PEH stands for uh, persons experiencing homelessness. Uh, the figure on the right is a map of charity care patients uh, by supervisorial district, uh, and darker areas represent higher numbers of patients uh, who receive charity care. 
Uh, and following with years past, we see that a large number of patients are from districts that have lower uh, average household income, particularly those representing the Tenderloin, Soma, and Bayview. Uh, and these neighborhoods also have some of the highest preventable uh, emergency room visits. Um, and as you saw in Dr. Bennett's presentation, it maps on to the longevity study map that she had presented. Uh, next slide, please. So health coverage and demographic data was collect collected on traditional charity care patients again this year with all hospitals submitting data for their patients. Uh, the figure on the left shows the racial ethnic breakdown of patients in 2021 or 2021 uh, compared to the overall San Francisco population. Uh, data show that uh, patients are more likely to be Hispanic Latinx or black African American compared to the overall city population. Uh, when examined by coverage type, as shown on the figure on the right, we see that in 2000 uh, or 2021, 21% uh, of traditional charity care patients were uninsured, and 78% had some form of health coverage. Uh, and this includes Medi-Cal, Medicare, uh, and commercial insurance. So this uh, data supports the contention that many people receiving charity care are those who have coverage but may be unable to afford uh, health care expenses. Uh, and while this data and I received a question regarding residency and payer status. Um, so while we collect data on residency and payer status of charity care patients, uh, this data uh, can't be cross-tabulated, uh, but in future submissions, we'll work to try and collect uh, that type of data and um, try and explore whether we can analyze data by um, payer status and by residency. Um, so stepping back, what we see is that those rece receiving traditional charity care are also those most likely to be experiencing some of the most significant health inequities uh, and who have higher medical need. And this includes uh, persons experiencing homelessness, uh, persons of color, as well as uh, persons with lower so uh, socioeconomic status. Uh, and we also see that it's not just the uninsured being serviced by these programs, but also a high proportion of patients uh, with some form of uh, health coverage. Uh, next slide, please. So during the reporting period, uh, there was an increase in the overall number of patients who received charity care in San Francisco. Uh, the figure on the left uh, shows the number of patients receiving charity care. And between 2019 to 2021, uh, there was a 13% increase in the number of charity care patients. Uh, the second figure on the right uh, provides an overview of charity care patient counts by service type. And over the past two years, the number of charity care patients uh, have also increased uh, for each service type with patient counts for emergency and outpatient services increasing the most. Uh, next slide, please. So the graph, the next graph shows charity care expenditures and Medi-Cal shortfalls over the previous five years. Um, and as background, Medi-Cal shortfall is the difference between expenditures for Medi-Cal services and the re reimbursement received for those uh, services. Hospitals will uh, typically absorb this cost. Uh, between 2019 and 2021, uh, charity care expenditures increased overall by 19%, while Medi-Cal shortfalls remained relatively similar year to year. Uh, the, uh, the increase in overall charity expenditures were driven primarily by ZSFG and its hospital-specific policy ch uh, changes to end uh, patient balance billing. Uh, and COVID-driven uh, decreases in hospitalization, which I'll discuss more in a moment. Um, Uh, likely contributed to a stable uh, to the stable levels of shortfall that we observed uh, among uh, medic um, among the medical shortfalls. Um, 
And I just want to note um, one other thing that was brought up uh, ahead of this commission meeting uh, was that um, each hospital's uh, charity care costs uh, presented are the actual costs for providing that care, uh, not what was charged based on their charge master. Uh, instit Institution-specific cost-to-charge ratios um, were used to convert uh, charity care uh, charges to cost to get a better uh, and more accurate understanding in terms of uh, comparison across hospitals. Uh, next slide, please. So this graph shows hospital-specific data on unduplicated uh, charity care patients for hospitals during the reporting period. Um, and as you can see, uh, the overall increase in charity care patients was driven by ZSFG and UCSF. And collectively, these two hospitals represent 75% of charity care patients served in 2020 and 2021. And therefore, any changes in charity care at these inst institutions have a disproportionate impact on, on citywide trends. Uh, and I want to note that also St. Mary's also experienced uh, an increase. Uh, the other hospitals during the reporting period uh, experienced decreases in charity care patients, uh, and these hospitals included CPMC's uh, Van Ness and Mission Bernal campuses, uh, Chinese Hospital, Kaiser, uh, and St. Francis. Uh, so what happened at UCSF and uh, uh, ZSFG? So the increase in charity care patients at both hospitals were reported to be driven by hospital-specific policy changes in their charity care programs. So first, in February 2019, ZSFG amended its charity care and discount programs to add new patient financial protections and end patient balance billing. Uh, and again, this is referred to as surprise billing. Um, these changes expanded patient eligibility, increasing the number of patients receiving charity care. Uh, note that ZSFG reports data on a fiscal year, so the full impacts of this policy change wouldn't have been observed until 2020. Uh, at UCSF, uh, they began proactively applying charity care adjustments to uh, patients uh, qualified for financial assistance without requiring an application from the patients, and this started in 2021, uh, and this to increase the number of patients receiving charity care at the hospital. Uh, next slide, please. So while there was an overall increase in the charity care patients um, uh, observed citywide, five out of the eight reporting hospitals experienced decreases in charity care patients, which were likely driven by COVID-related impacts. Uh, the pandemic uh, and its health and economic effects had a significant impact on our healthcare system. Uh, most notably, it resulted in periods of decreased hospital utilization, including decreases in emergency, ambulatory, and inpatient services. Uh, the graph shown on this slide is based on data from the state and shows that San Francisco's monthly average patient encounters for hospital services before and after the onset of the pandemic. Uh, note that this graph is inclusive of charity care and non-charity care patients. So decreases in utilization were most significant in 2020, but rates continued to be below pre-pandemic levels in 2021. So for example, uh, ED visits continued to be about 20% uh, uh, below the 2019 uh, uh, baseline levels. Uh, these declines were, more, uh, were likely a contributing factor in the observed uh, decreases in charity care patients among uh, the five hospitals I noted earlier. Uh, another driver for decreases in charity care is that health coverage actually increased in California due to policies implemented in response to the pandemic. So policies such as Medi-Cal's continuous coverage requirement, uh, which barred um, enrollment terminations, resulted in millions of Californians staying on Medi-Cal. And according to data from a statewide survey, 94% of Californians uh, were insured in 2020, and this is actually the highest number um, recorded um, from this survey. And in San Francisco, 96.4% uh, of the population was insured in 2021, also one of the highest rates recorded. 
these increases in health coverage may have also contributed to uh, uh, overall reductions uh, in requests for charity care. Next slide, please. So in this slide, uh, I'm, I'm glad this table is showing since it had dropped uh, in the previous committee meeting. Uh, this table shows each hospital's ratio of charity care costs to net patient revenue for the most recent year and compares them to the state average. Uh, this ratio is a useful metric for comparing each hospital's relative uh, charity care contribution. And overall, the ratio for all but two reporting hospitals uh, are higher than the state average. And ZSFG, which is the highest or the largest provider of charity care, had the highest ratio at about 14%. Uh, and so based on feedback from the Finance and Planning Committee, we've added a new graph uh, to the report that shows the ratio for the past uh, five years, or five years for, for each hospital or for all hospitals where we have data. Uh, and the data show that most hospitals have seen increases in their charity care costs to net patient revenue ratios, which follows the statewide trend with most hospitals outperforming the state during this period. Um, and lastly, um, per the request of the, the Health Commission, we conducted a, a literature review of the other metrics or other metrics uh, to compare hospitals relative uh, charity care contributions. And we only identified one other potentially relevant metric, which is the ratio of charity care expenditures to ho hospital um, operating expenses. And we analyzed uh, San Francisco's hospital data using this metric. And the, ana the, the analysis uh, data showed that similar trend, um, a similar trend to what we observed uh, in the net patient, uh, net patient revenue uh, ratios. And so while these two metrics closely correlate with one, uh, one another, I do want to note um, some slight differences. So the ratio of charity care to operating expenses shows a hospital's contribution relative to expenses incurred for providing uh, patient care, and the ratio of charity care to net patient revenue captures its contribution relative to the actual revenue uh, received for services provided. And because net patient revenue doesn't capture the expenses associated with uncompensated care, hospitals with higher levels of uh, this type of service uh, perform better when using the metric uh, to compare hospitals. And so this is particularly re relevant when we're uh, showing uh, the charity co chair contributions of our safety net hospital, which provides a high level of uncomp uncompensated care. Uh, and so we plan to continue using the measure that's currently used in the report uh, to emphasize a larger proportion of charity care that's uh, provided by our safety net institution. Uh, but moving forward, we'll continue to assess uh, the use of new metrics as, all, as well as uh, the relevance of the metrics that's currently uh, used in the, the report. Uh, next slide. So as a brief refresher, again, traditional charity care refers to care provided to under and uninsured patients who are not enrolled in Healthy San Francisco. And Healthy San Francisco is our local program designed to make healthcare services available and affordable to uninsured San Francisco residents. Um, and again, Healthy San Francisco is an important contributor to the San Francisco's hospital-based uh, charity care landscape because like traditional charity care, um, HSF um, is not insurance. Uh, and Commissioner, uh, to the question that I had received ahead of the, the presentation uh, regarding your question on hospital losses. So under HSF uh, or Healthy San Francisco, hospitals do receive some reimbursement from the city and county for providing care to Healthy San Francisco enrollees, uh, but this doesn't cover the full cost of providing those services. Uh, so when we dive deeper into the data that's presented here and compare it to the patient populations of these two types of care, um, there's several differences that I do want to note. Uh, the first is that we see that the observed increase in charity care patients was driven by traditional charity care, while healthy San Francisco patients remained relatively stable during the reporting period. 
Uh, this suggests that there are populations who continue to rely on Healthy San Francisco for accessing healthcare services who are likely ineligible for Medi-Cal. And second, you'll see that the proportion of emergency care is greater for traditional charity care patients compared to the healthy San Francisco population. Uh, and this data supports the contention that healthy San Francisco patients uh, have greater access to primary and preventative care services. Uh, next slide, please. So moving forward, there are a number of state and federal policy changes that will influence charity care programs and their use. Uh, as I noted earlier, policies implemented during the pandemic helped to mitigate the potential negative impacts of the pandemic on healthcare coverage and likely impacted charity care trends in the city. Uh, with the end of the public health emergency, the government is unwinding these policies. So for example, the normal process to redetermine eligibility for Medi-Cal enrollees was started in April of 2023. Um, and the state anticipates that this change will potentially lead to an estimated total of two to three million Medi-Cal disenrollments. Uh, the increase in disenrollments will, has the potential to lead to an increase in charity care patients due to uh, an increased number of the un uninsured and underinsured. Additionally, as we enter a new phase of the pandemic, we expect uh, healthcare utilization rates to continue to climb, uh, which will likely also impact uh, charity care. Uh, unrelated to the pandemic, another change to Medi-Cal that's underway is the effort to expand eligibility regardless of documentation status. So in May 2022, uh, the state began allowing undocumented residents over the age of 50 with low incomes to enroll in Medi-Cal. And in January 2024, uh, all Californians with low incomes, uh, will, regardless of immigra immigration status, will be eligible for Medi-Cal. Uh, these Medi-Cal expansions are expected to, de uh, to decrease uh, the overall enrollment in both healthy San Francisco and likely requests for charity care as well. Um, and lastly, two new state laws went into effect in 2022 uh, and will likely impact charity care at reporting hospitals in future years. Uh, uh, these bills update patient notice requirements for charity care and require hospitals to automatically provide people without health coverage an application for financial assistance or charity care. Uh, some reporting hospitals have, have uh, shared already that these bills are likely to increase requests for, uh, for charity care. Uh, next slide, please. So San Francisco's uh, charity care ordinance has enabled the collection of a long history of data since 2020 or 2001. And this report actually marks uh, 20 years of uh, capturing data uh, under the ordinance. Uh, and I wanna note that the continued collection of this data will help to provide insight into the impacts of uh, these ongoing policy changes uh, and future uh, potential changes uh, that we've, uh, we're seeing right now. Um, so this concludes my presentation. I'd like to acknowledge uh, our hospital partners, uh, who I believe are some of whom are on the call, uh, for their participation on the work group, and, and I want to thank them for their continued support. And I'd also like to acknowledge my colleague, uh, Michelle Coe, uh, on her work on the project as she led the report analysis and drafting, um, and also the review of each hospital's uh, notification policies. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is an incredible amount of data to collect and analyze. And we also, as commissioners, would also like to th thank the hospitals for their participation as well. It's a lot of work, and I think it's very interesting and a lot of uh, information that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Is there any public comment on this item? Hi, folks on the line. Uh, please press star three if you have received a combination. would like to make public, remote public comment on item six, the charity care report. All right, see no hands. If you'd like to make remote public comment and have not received accommodation, you're welcome to, to raise your hand now to um, be acknowledged. No hands, commissioners. Any comments 
for questions from commissioners. Commissioner Girada. I mean, Guillermo. <laughs> too many G's in this room. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again, Mr. Gar, for uh, your report. Uh, that uh, I know we got a preview of it at the Joint uh, uh, Health and um, Planning Committee meeting, and I appreciate you updating uh, the, the data as per the request that was made. Uh, particularly as it relates to the uh, ratio of uh, cost to net patient revenue, uh, which I think is a really helpful um, uh, a data point or set of data points for us to sort of take a look at who, which hospitals in San Francisco are being most impacted uh, by the charity care or taken another way, which, are, which hospitals are more likely uh, to uh, see the kinds of patients where charity care is uh, uh, more evident. Uh, one of the things that um, might be, um, it's probably more qualitative, I think, than quantitative on that same sort of vein is um, each of these hospitals also provide a range of services, some of which might lend themselves more to an, the kinds of charity care costs that um, uh, might be uh, more prevalent than other types of services and specialties. Some of the hospitals have EDs and some of them don't. So it, I don't know, I can't remember if it's in the full report, but maybe some of that data could be provided to sort of round out uh, the picture so it's not just surely, uh, purely numerical or um, uh, quantifiable, but sort of the, and you know there's a description of services and the thing, but something that's a little bit more specific around the types of services uh, and specialties that are provided, which gives us a little bit uh, more flavor mm -hmm. uh, to the kinds of charity co uh, care that might be uh, being provided in addition to the costs mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, um, the types of uh, response that hospitals may have to the kinds of needs that are existing in, in San Francisco, particularly in certain neighborhoods. Now, thank you for that feedback. And as you mentioned, we do have the, the hospital descriptions where there is some like high level description of the, the, the type of care that's provided, but maybe we can look to see if we can collect kind of data from them specifically on the types of um, services where they see charity care more likely to be uh, kind of uh, used or provided. Thank you. Seeing no other, oh, oh Commissioner Chow. Oh, no, I, I just wanted to commend uh, 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 Max and the department for continuing to improve this report. And I think this is one of our finest reports that we have uh, uh, created over these years. And that uh, it, uh, I think, uh, serves this purpose, which is to show that all of our uh, hospitals are participating and what the value of the uh, uh, hospital services are, uh, secondarily it uh, does uh, also assist in answering the question, what is the relevance of nonprofits in a, uh, in a city? So uh, thank you again for this uh, very fine report. Thank you, Commissioner. I think all of us would like to associate ourselves with Commissioner Chow's comments. Thank you so much, Mr. Gar. Thank you, Commissioners. All right, the um, next item is the Director's Report. Director Colfax. Thank you, uh, Chair Green, and good afternoon, Health Commissioners. Uh, there is a lot in the Director's report. I'm going to highlight just two areas and then happy to address any questions you may have about what I'm about to talk about and or 
um, other written materials. So to start off with an issue that has been in the press and that is not in the written director's report, but it is timely, so I just wanted to highlight it for the commission. Um, the mayor is launching a multi-pronged effort to address drug dealing and drug use on the streets. A unified command um, is being established called the Drug Market Agency Coordinated Coordination Center with the abbreviation of DMAC, which will enhance the existing unified efforts uh, by formalizing communications and operational coordination across departments. The mission of the DMAC is to coordinate all lines of operational effort, including engagement, enforcement, and treatment resources related to disrupting and reducing the severity and number of open air drug markets and to reduce drug use on the streets. To address drug use, the mayor's office has launched a pilot program with the San Francisco Police Department, detaining those individuals who are highly intoxicated in public and are either a danger to themselves or the public or unable to take care of themselves. They will be detained by the sheriff's office and the sheriff will decide when they will be released. While being detained, Jail Health Services, which as the commission knows is part of DPH, will ensure the care and safety of individuals in the custody of the sheriff's office and provide a pathway to treatment for individuals requesting treatment. For the pilot, there will be no change in our handling of medical issues. For the future larger program, we are continuing to coordinate and, and uh, more details will be provided as it becomes clear uh, through this coordinating body and through the sheriff and police uh, what that larger effort, uh, may, how that larger effort may be realized in terms of physical space and capacity. DPH has defined procedures to ensure care and safety when a person enters the sheriff department uh, for detention. This is again for the pilot, which includes when a person enters detention, they undergo a nursing assessment. If urgent or emergent needs are identified, they are transferred to the emergency department. While a person is being detained, uh, the, the uh, jail health services monitor intoxication uh, and also provides and offers uh, behavioral health services uh, while the person is in the jail. And when they are released, uh, the, sheriff, uh, the sheriff office implements a discharge plan. Uh, we, DPH supports the discharge plan with connections to withdrawal management and treatment services at the Behavioral Health Access Center. We, DPH also offers substance use management that includes buprenorphine um, or methadone uh, upon discharge. And we also offer uh, buprenorphine uh, while in jail. And I think uh, the commission's also aware that uh, with support of the sheriff, we have recently um, implemented distribution of, uh, well, not that recently, but we also have Narcan available uh, in the jails and upon discharge. So I just wanted to provide you with the current status of this pilot program and make the commission aware of DPH's role, which is again to ensure uh, that people uh, in custody are offered services um, and when they are discharged um, from custody that uh, in coordination with the sheriff, uh, that as part of that discharge plan, which again is led by the sheriff, that DPH makes uh, treatment modalities available uh, for people. And again, we will report more on that as, as things go forward. 
The second item I wanted to talk about um, relates to Laguna Honda Hospital. Some really exciting news to share, which is written in the director's report. It's the first item, which is announcing uh, Sandra Simon as the nursing home administrator and chief executive officer for Laguna Honda Hospital. Um, after a thorough and extensive search, DPH is pleased to announce that uh, Ms. Simon as the new leader of the Laguna Honda Hospital. She will serve as the NHA and chief executive officer effective uh, soon, uh, June 26. This transition to a licensed NHA as the most senior position at Laguna Honda aligns Laguna Honda with top performing skilled nursing facilities nationwide. Sandra has the experience, skills, and passion to lead Laguna Honda and to best serve our residents. She was chosen for this important role for her commitment to Laguna Honda's mission and her over 20 years of successful experience as a nursing home administrator. During her career, Sandra has established a track record of success leading skilled nursing facilities, assisted living programs, and memory care programs along with large multi-building campuses with varying levels of care. Sandra has held multiple leadership roles, including serving as the Chief Administrative Officer of San, the San Francisco Campus for Jewish Living, uh, San Francisco's second largest SNF after Laguna Honda, and she has most currently uh, held roles as the Campus Director for the Holgate Center Campus, which includes skilled nursing, assisted living, residential care, and independent housing, as well as having served as the Nursing Home Administrator for the Friend Friendship Health Center. So really uh, delighted to have Ms. Simon uh, uh, returning to the Bay Area, returning to San Francisco, excited about her leadership. And again, she will start June 26. I also want to assure the commission uh, that uh, Roland Pickens and, uh, and and his team will be staying at Laguna Honda um, and, and, and working closely uh, with Ms. Simon as we move forward with recertification. Uh, and so the current um, work that we will that we're doing at Laguna Honda under Mr. Pickens' leadership will continue um, with, with the same staff and Ms. Simon will be an additional reinforcement um, uh, through the recertification process. I also wanted to share with the commission the good news that we've also um, uh, are, are, have identified and uh, have offered positions to the deputy assistant nursing home administrators. So uh, we expect those two positions uh, to be filled very soon as well. So additional good news there. And then on the uh, another area of Lugan Honda to update you on, um, you will recall that uh, as Mr. Pickens reported to you two weeks ago, the uh, Coordinated Care at Bedside Initiative uh, has uh, just started. Um, currently, um, the, the team are, are present in four of the 13 neighborhoods. We expect uh, all 13 neighborhoods to be populated with, this, uh, with people uh, responsible for executing this initiative by the end of the month. The other uh, key update is as of yesterday, yes, yesterday, this is, yes, yesterday, um, uh, CMS surveyors arrived to commence with the third uh, monitoring survey, which as you recall, is part of our settlement agreement. Uh, those surveyors uh, are on site and we will continue to ensure that the commission is updated with any uh, relevant information that we can share from that survey, but that survey has uh, commenced and the team is very uh, busy in terms of ensuring that the surveyors are um, getting all the information uh, that they need. Um, and we are uh, hopeful for a successful survey. 
So I will uh, stop there and happy to answer any questions about the items I just went through or other written items in the director's report. Thank you. Thank you. Um, is there any public comment? Uh, yes, um, folks online, um, let's start with those who have received accommodations. Um, let's see, Jaime or Jeanette, please un, um, unmute one of the callers and let's go from there. Yeah, hi, it's Patrick Monachal, can you hear me? Yes, please begin, Mr. Monachal. I've got three minutes on the timer. Thank you. Laguna Honda's last nursing home administrator, Larry Funk, who is well venerated, um, was outed in 2004. It's shocking that it's taken Laguna Honda's decertification to finally hire a nursing home administrator. But I congratulate Sandra Simon for being hired as the new NHA. It's a plus. She's a Native American Indian, quote unquote, medicine woman. In June 22, NHA identified a nursing home administrator as necessary. In November 2022, HSAG prepared its first root cause analysis for submission to CMS on December 1st, noting, quote, the facility does not have a nursing home administrator on staff, which contributes to the lack of knowledge specific to nursing home regulations. It's shameful. It's taken a full year to hire Ms. Simon. CMS's February 1st letter to Laguna uh, Honda noted it also wanted the two nursing home, assistant nursing home administrators onboarded rapidly. So it's good hearing Dr. Colfax say that might happen soon. I fully support my colleague, Dr. Terry Palmer's written testimony that she submitted for today. She wrote, quote, a new nursing home administrator will not be able to assist in failing Laguna Honda intact unless she is empowered to act independently, end quote. As Palmer noted, if there are any more immediate jeopardy citations and they continue, we will lose Laguna Honda. You need to empower Ms. Simon to act independently of Mr. Pickens um, until recertification is actually accomplished as the new CEO and NAJ, she should be able to act independently of Pickens and his team who have dragged their feet for over a year uh, getting to uh, a place where you might be eligible to submit an application for recertification. Thank you. All right, thank you. And we have one more. Um... Please unmute when you get a chance. Call oh, let us know that you're uh, there. Can you hear me? Yes, Dr. Palmer, begin. Oh, hi, uh, Dr. Palmer, AA. I, um, as a retired nursing home doc, one thing I know about is writing and following care plans. And if you don't have enough staff uh, to get to know the patients or you move staff around too much, um, there's no way they can follow the care plan because they don't know the patient. And um, so the new nursing home administrator 
um, is not going to be su successful in avoiding um, immediate jeopardy unless um, staff is stable and um, deployed in a stable way to different uh, uh, patient assignments. Um, and so that is really worrisome. Um, the other thing is if um, there aren't sufficient um, uh, behavioral services for disabled people and um, Laguna Honda either cannot discharge uh, people or is pressured to admit uh, people to facilitate the flow at general, um, it's gonna be the same old mess. Uh, there has to be adequate um, behavioral um, treatment and care uh, for patients who won't do well at a nursing home elsewhere in the city. And the, um, the new nursing home administrator has to be given the latitude um, to initiate an, a screening program of these patients. Um, so uh, patients who are, are impossibly difficult for a nursing home to accommodate uh, will not be admitted and will have other places in the community that they're cared for. So my question is, it, will Mrs. Simon be given the latitude and support she needs to, to do the job right? Or is she gonna be under the thumb of um, other entities in the system that see Laguna Honda as a secondary facility, uh, which is how Laguna Honda got into this mess in the first place? Thanks a lot. Those are the only two public comments. Uh, thank you. Um, I just want to jump in, and first of all, I think I can speak on the behalf of the commission. We are delighted at this appointment and know that all the appropriate steps were taken to ensure we picked the right person. And, and personally, I think it was worth, worth the effort and worth the time to do that. And knowing that we have the two assistant nursing home administrators with offers out is so encouraging. So I think this is a really positive development. And I, if I'm right, I think it's one of the things that, that CMS demanded of us as part of the um, recertification program. So that's a really wonderful uh, accomplishment. One of the things though that, that does concern me, and I, I may not understand this fully, is that I think we had all concluded with the advice of, of um, the consultants that the um, coordinated care at the bedside initiative was really important not only in, in, in order to implement all the action, uh, actions that, that we've been able to accomplish, but also to kind of ensure continuity and to ensure, as, as has been mentioned, that bedside care and in particular staff at the bedside um, feel comfortable with all the rules, regulations, and, and all of their uh, appropriate uh, responsibilities. And yet now the surveyors are here um, probably sooner than we would have liked and certainly sooner than Ms. Steinman has come. So can you comment at all on, on you know, where that leaves us and how we're going to both um, address these surveyors as well as launch this incredibly critical initiative? Yeah, so thank you, um, uh, Chair Green. And, and I, I think that um, we're, you know, we've, we went through the most recent survey successfully and um, I am, you know, cautiously optimistic that with the team and all the work that has happened um, that uh, this this survey will uh, unfold successfully. We're certainly hoping that that is the case, understanding um, that, you know, there there have been uh, uh, findings in the past that, that have been very challenging for us to respond to. And, um, you know, 
if, if that so unfolds, then we will uh, manage that a, as we can. I do think that the, you know, the, the and, and, and Mr. Pickens is not here today, um, largely because there's a survey going on at the hospital and he and his team, it requires their full attention. But just to, um, you know, the, the coordinated care at bedside initiative, uh, the goal of that is in response to the findings that um, we have um, had both internally in our own quality control work and from the other surveys, the, 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 the initiative, the goal of the initiative is to not only get us as teed up for recertification as possible, but also to sustain that effort going forward. So this is not a matter of cramming for the test. This is really a matter of really uh, moving forward and modernizing Laguna Honda to be uh, the best if it can be going forward within the CMS rules and regulations, right? It is true that this survey is happening before that, before this initiative has really, um, it's just it's just started, as I said, in four units. So the reflection of the survey, the, the findings of the survey will not reflect the efforts of, of, of that initiative. Um, and, and so I appreciate your pointing out that, that timing. We, we, as you know, uh, we do not have any control um, of when the surveyors uh, come. They, they arrive unannounced and um, we have, uh, Ex Mr. Mr. Pickens and his team have executed and have been working with our quality improvement consultants to ensure that the right people are on board for the coordinated care, the, 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 the quality care initiative um, at bedside. And, sorry, uh, there are a lot of abbreviations here, but basically for that initiative to um, start as, as quickly as possible. And, and that is, again, getting off the ground. We don't expect the survey to slow that down. And as I said, because of staffing issues and so forth, we expect all 13 neighborhoods to have um, uh, uh, that initiative, uh, uh, staff executing that initiative by the end of the month. Well, that's quite incredible. And we have to uh, extend our gratitude to the staff for not only dealing with the surveyors, but also really getting this very important initiative off the ground. So you know, thank you for answering that. I, I should turn to my other commissioners. Any questions or comments? Mr. Chuck. Uh, yes, and, and, and thank you for, um, for that uh, report. So I, I think that uh, what you've said is that uh, Ms. Simon is coming on as the administrator, obviously has to have herself uh, become acquainted with everything. Yes. And that you are providing full support with Mr. Pickens still remaining on board in order to uh, assist in carrying out the recertification so that this will, uh, bringing on Ms. Simon says that Ms. Simon will be the lead is, is that correct uh, once she has become oriented and and uh, becomes the authority uh, working with uh, the uh, team that you have put together in uh, this uh, crisis mode that gives her that support in order to do all the work that's necessary to be successful in our recertification so that, that's how I'm understanding that's exactly right. There's, I mean, there's a, it's a very dynamic environment. So, you know, in any 
system this large, um, it's a dynamic environment. This is only more so. So the consistent care bedside initiative is just another example of things moving rapidly in our our efforts in investing in improvements is, is, is an example of that. And yes, that, that uh, Ms. Lyman get the support that she needs and that there's a period of time through recertification where the team that is in place um, helps support uh, her and the work going forward. This is not a time for us to you know, transition um, uh, it, and have uh, the team that's currently been there for over a year uh, step back. We just need to reinforce the, the work through Ms. Simon and other staff that are coming on to support the work and to strengthen the hospital. Um, and then, you know, with, re with anticipated and hopefully successful recertification, a more um, stepwise transition to um, uh, having uh, 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 a Laguna Honda, uh, a Laguna Honda leadership team that can sustain the work going forward um, uh, uh, independently with oversight from Mr. Pickens, as, as was as, as was the previous structure, will be um, developed. But that that is in the future, um, uh, uh, not in the immediate future. Certainly not before uh, what we're all um, hoping for, which is a successful recertification. And, and I would hope that at uh, at an appropriate time that Ms. Simon feels also comfortable to come and uh, be introduced to the commission, that it would be really uh, a very good idea for, for us to become uh, much more acquainted with uh, this very uh, key person who's coming on board. Oh, certainly, and I would certainly expect um, when she arrives, um, when Mr. Pickens presents an update on Laguna Honda, that uh, Ms. Simon will, will be here. Okay, uh, thank you very much. All right, no other comments or questions, then we'll go to the Finance and Planning Committee update, and that is Commissioner Chan. Hello, Commissioners. Um, the Finance and Planning Committee met um, right before this commission meetings, and we um, had um, uh, um, we have accepted one one contract report and six new contracts plus um, an approval of uh, the wafer um, a list of wafer um, sole source wafer um, and this particular one is under the San Francisco Administrative Code, Chapter 21.42, and um, it is really not exactly so source, but um, for our existing contractor to be able to fill the gap should there be a, a, an, a gap occurs, you know, between contracts. So, um, and the list is in front of you, but I also want to draw your attention to um, the one of the um, providers on the list has been um, removed, which is the Oaks Children's Centers because they are now closed. And, and um, it's all on the consent calendar for your approval. And Commissioner? Oh, uh, um, I, I, I forgot. There's one other thing that I, I did mention is, you know, one of the contracts in here is um, about like transports, you know, to transport low-income pa um, patients to dialysis. Um, and because of like all the new policy around environmental justice, I think that it's really worth having a conversation to make sure that these vehicles that, you know, that the contract, co contracted agencies use 
are green vehicles, or at least, you know, moving toward, you know, um, turning them green. And Commissioner, may I add that there was a correction on the contracts report. I know you all might not get the detail, but I want to make sure we have the record straight. On that same contractor, the Capital Transit, um, there are some changes of numbers. I'm just going to read the new numbers. For Capital Transit, the proposed, I'm sorry, the, the prior annual amount without contingency should be $667,200. Proposed annual amount without contingency is $671,556. And that is an annual difference of 0.65. It's uh, very different than what's on your spreadsheet. And the, um, the Finance and Planning Committee accepted that as part of their recommendation for the full commission to uh, approve that. All right. Is there any public comment on this item? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, could you please unmute the caller, Jeanette or Jaime? I believe it's Mr. Manette Shaw. Here, I'll do it. There we go. I was just unmuted. Can I start? Yes, please. You've got three minutes. As I just testified to the Finance and Planning Committee at 2 p.m., the nearly $1 million contract with LCWR Incorporated to provide the clinical key platform for online access to nursing policies and procedures used at Laguna Honda and SFGH is worrisome. When I worked at Laguna Honda for a decade, all hospital policies were available online on the hospital's intranet. Although a auxiliary incorrect representative stated the clinical key platform contained some kind of lookup feature tied to any given policy to refresh clinicians um, memories on particular procedures. I think the example used was for placement of a Foley catheter. It's concerning clinicians would need to access, would need access to an online professor training on basic procedures like Foley catheters. I was recently hospitalized for skin cancer, excision, and skilled nursing care. I wouldn't have wanted my clinicians uh, who were caring for me to have to look at basic procedures at the last minute. The Laguna Honda clinicians may need, may need their self-tribular contract to assist with efforts is both shocking and extremely worrisome. The Laguna Honda's recertification may hinge on um, basic procedures uh, tied to any given nursing policy and procedure. It's very, very worrisome. Thank you. That's the only public comment. Right. Are there any commissioner questions or comments on this item? All right, Th thank you for the report, Commissioner Chung, and I guess we go right into the consent calendar. Now, the contracts you presented are on the consent calendar, along with three policies and procedures that were approved at the ZSFG JCC last, uh, last week. So I believe we take these all in, in uh, one, one motion. One vote, yes. Okay. I so move to adopt the uh, consent calendar. Second. Um, and we go to all in favor? 
All right, all in favor? Aye. Aye. None opposed, thank you. So the consent calendar is approved. Um, the next item is the Joint Conference Committee and other committee reports, and I have the privilege of giving the JCC report from the county. So we met on May 23rd, and we received a really wonderful A3 presentation about a safe and equitable, equitable staff experience and workplace violence prevention. And they've been focused on ways to keep not only staff safe, but, but also obviously the, the patients as well, because we do have a complex pa patient population with mental health as well as substance use issues. And so I think they're making excellent progress there. We reviewed the standard reports, which is the regulatory affairs report and the HR report, the CEO report. Um, the CDPH is really behind in its um, investigations of cases at uh, ZSFG, but most of the issues on the regulatory affairs report, we feel confident we will not have any kind of jeopardies or concerns when they do eventually um, come out. The HR department is really doing a great job of keeping the nursing staffing going. And then finally, we said goodbye to Susan Brashevich, who was uh, the head of uh, risk management and did a wonderful job whenever we had cases uh, brought to us. It's a really wonderful, well-organized department. And then we, in closed session, um, we approved the credentials in PIP's minutes reports. So that is the um, item from the ZSFG. Are there any public comment? Uh, folks online, we're on item 10. Any comment, please press star three. No hands. All right, commissioner questions, comments, great. So the next item is other business. Is there any other business? Or a public comment, item 11. No public comment. All right, then we will entertain a motion for adjournment. I so move to adjourn the meeting. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you everyone for this long, but very informative meeting. And very thanks SFGov TV folks for helping out. <laughs>